You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling, professional live theater and events. This week, my guest was Dakota Sylvie. Um, Dakota and I had known each other before I interviewed him. Um, he had submitted work to us. Then I met him at the ATAF, RC Armed Forces uh, Bridge Awards. Turned out to be the last one they had before that organization went under. Um, they say I went to see one of Dakota's play readings, one of his plays when it was getting read at City Center. And, uh, and then he and I met up for beers um, after that to talk about all things playwriting. So, <clears throat> so this had a lot of runway to it um, by the time we actually got together at the beautiful Players in New York City to record this interview <clears throat> in person. And it was, uh, it was a great time uh, talking with Dakota. It was our first time to really, um, you know, first time talking that wasn't tethered to a subject. And as you guys will hear, it was a wide and broad spectrum of subjects that we cover <clears throat> in this show. Uh, there is a downside, which is that somehow some level seven user error occurred <laughs> and my mic apparently was not on, um, which is mystifying because that shouldn't have been. But anyway, um, I messed up. So my sound is off during this interview. Um, it's fine. We bounce the levels out. You'll be able to hear everything I said. It just sounds crappy. Um, Dakota comes through loud and clear, and he's the one you really want to hear anyway. So hopefully this will not diminish your joy in listening to this episode. <clears throat> because Dakota, I mean, he is, uh, there's so many things we talk about that are worth hearing from him on. You know, this interview was precipitated by his placing second in our latest 10-minute playwriting competition for his play, um, Intermission Play. It's a lot of plays, but Intermission Play, which is a really great, whimsical, funny, hilarious piece about a couple teetering on the edge of a breakup during the intermission of a play. <clears throat> what is maybe most remarkable to me about it is that, uh, you know, Dakota's spent the majority of his life in the Air Force as a wildland firefighter. Uh, you know, just got his EMT. Um, he has these two very separate halves of himself that he actively feeds. So to, you know, contrast his time in the profession of arms with being a theater MBA or sorry, MFA, I should say, um, you know, is, is really a hell of a thing. And, uh, yeah, I just had a great time talking to him about it. And again, my questions will come in a little rickety, but his answers will be five by five over your radios. So anyway, enjoy the episode. I certainly did. My apologies for the sound. Uh, but we'll, we'll straighten that out for next time. All right. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is the Savage Wonder of Dakota Sylvie. 
out, Dakota. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be in person. I know, right? Yeah. I know. It goes a long freaking way. I was just tired of looking at screens, you know? Yeah. And I'm too frustrated with technology, internet <laughs> cutting out and... Yeah. <laughs> also, ambulances going by my window. Oh, yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's that's good ambient noise. It gives us a type of setting, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Dude, where were you traveling? You just came back from overseas, right? Yep. I um, took this whole sort of winter break to to take some time in India, visited a friend, and then motorcycled top to bottom. Why? Because uh, I'm addicted to traveling. Really? Yeah. I, I try to take a trip every winter and it's usually very like hostels keep it cheap and sure um and actually stole the idea from a, a theater technician who you know the dry month is january so he calls it operation fuck winter so that i stole his gotcha. his idea where uh have you been to india before my first time really yeah so where did you end up spending most of your time or was it really non-us traveling my friend is um he's from bangalore and he's an actor in new york city as well and so I got to stay with him, and his mom is a, a great actress. Her, name, her name's Shanti Krishna. And so I got to hang with them. I got to even go to like a little Bollywood set, spend, spend New Year's, Christmas with them, and then I kind of took off and solo traveled. Wow. I mean, how was it overall? What's your, what's your bottom line? Amazing. Yeah, one of my best trips. Um, it was cool because I don't usually know someone yeah. when I, like I went to Vietnam last year. I didn't know anyone. I just kind of solo tripped it, met other travelers. But it was cool to actually place in with people who yeah. know what's going on, especially yeah. with, like getting picked up from the airport. That's never happened for me traveling abroad. Right. That was nice, you know. Yeah. What was the airport like? Um, Bangalore, which is I think pretty much the third largest city, has a new airport and it's amazing. It was oh, really? spectacular. In fact, when they picked me up, they were looking at it because they hadn't seen it yet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it wasn't crazy with like, like it wasn't. Uh, you know, a mob scene at, at the doors getting out. Right, which is usually the case. Like, you have people trying to get you in, like, tuk-tuks or taxis. And so I was able to push past that. There's a few people, but this airport, this terminal is quite new. So uh, very empty, beautiful, nice ambient lighting, music. What was it like traveling through India? What were your takeaways from the trip? Um, I mean, the biggest takeaway I always get when I leave here is everything is so much older, you know? Yeah. You come back, I appreciate the building we're in, but it like doesn't hold a candle to some of the sort of temples and ruins. And I got to go see like some just beautiful waterfalls. Even the waterfalls felt different, like hit different. So, um, but getting to travel to the different regions, um, even in other countries I've been to, I've never experienced such a difference between each region. And even my friend and his mother were telling me, Seriously, every state, different food. Like, they're like, the food we eat down in Bangalore, down in Kerala, nothing compared to some of the places you're going to see up north. Like, even we have to adjust. And so it was so cool that, like, I think for 30 days, never repeated a dish. Really? <laughs> yeah, like, just, what's that? Uh, thank you. I'll have that. Are you a um, Yeah, I mean, definitely traveling. I push myself out of my comfort zone, but I do get into comfortable eating habits. It's funny, in New York, you'd think I'd get used to right. eating everything. Then I get overwhelmed, and I just eat, like, the same, right. like, chicken and rice. <laughs> um, how did the food compare to Indian food here? Um, you know, and my friend who spent time in New York, he agrees, like, it just, 
he, he can even get the spice. He's a great cook too. He can get the spices. He can make you amazingly amazing dosas and masalas. And he's like, but somehow, you know, when he's back home, there's something different. And I agree. Like, um, of course, Indian food here compared to the rest of the U S or, you know, like Britain or something. Um, Decent. You know, New York City, I, I think wonderful. I'm obviously not going to be in Indian food for a little while, but I'll definitely take notes next time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you travel, are you a people person or are you a nature sightseeing person or both? I get, I get stuck between the two, but, you know, you get to some of these hostels and you meet all these people traveling the world, which is what I, it's like one of my favorite parts is you're meeting people who just want to go experience things from, you know, usually not Americans. And, uh, and then, yeah, if I get to a hostel and there's like some big, you know, waterfall or uh, hiking trip, something like that, I'm, I'm very nature oriented. I'll go do that. I'll try to get into the culture, go do like a, you know, food tour or, um, you know, go see a temple. I mean, the nice thing, my last two trips, like Vietnam and India, some of these temples are far away from the city. I get a motorbike out there, enjoy like this green, lush, overcropping and get to, I mean, I remember seeing a temple in Vietnam that like this ancient tree had like dominated this uh, building at Angkor Wat, like one of the structures at the Angkor Wat temple. And I just was amazed at how the tree had like taken back and like grown over this beautiful temple. Um, Does the writer in you get inspired traveling? Or is it kind of like a timeout just to chill that part of your brain? Absolutely. I I don't think I ever get a timeout. Even when I'm like motorbiking, I'm just like internal. I think that's what's nice is I get a timeout from New York yeah. when I travel. And um, that introspection that I get. And also, big part of my being a writer is the writers I love are like adventure enthusiasts. And I always thought when reading stories of adventure or excitement like when I found out oh no like Jack London he went to the Yukon gold rush he didn't just write about it from like a room Um, and then on the other hand you know I found out that you know Stephen Crane wrote the red badge of courage having not participated in the war and yeah isn't that wild I, I yeah I hope fact check me on that I'm Pretty darn sure. Could have sworn he was in the war. I thought it was a first name account. Exactly. It's so good. He interviewed everyone. He was a boy during that war. And people swore when reading it, like veterans were like, you had to have been there. There's no way. And then they met him and it's like, you're too young. Um, And then, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But then he's also an adventure writer. Like he's. Uh, there's stories of him like gun running in Cuba and doing all sorts of <laughs> wild stuff. And then, you know, like the, the sort of third part of that is like, so like Hemingway's, you know, Farewell to Arms. He wasn't at um, the famous withdrawal that he wrote about. But I mean, he was there, just not that event. But then all the veterans, all the people who were there who read it could swear he was specifically at that moment. So I'm amazed at, like, what a writer can do. But, of course, I'm, you know, I'm probably not going to write, like, a story about India. Right. But I hope it influences everything else in my life. Like, the people I meet, 
the relationships and also like just you know the thoughts you have while traveling and introspecting. I hope it influences even if I'm just writing a kitchen sink drama or something. Does it help or does it expand your ear for dialogue? Just being around all these people, especially when they're not from the United States, not just Indians. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Whoever you're in the hostel with. Absolutely. The, the cacophony of voices in like a hostel bar. Um, typically a lot of Aussies. Um, and hearing them all communicate. Some people don't speak English as well. Sometimes they're speaking their native language to their friend. And getting to experience all of that, all the storytelling that goes on. Um, I pay. I have such an interest in accents and like dialects that I, you know, I make. I do this thing with my girlfriend. Where I'm like, "Do you hear that accent?" Like, she's like, "No." My girlfriend speaks English as a second language, so if I hear a southern accent, I'm like, "Do you hear that guy's drawl?" And she's like, "No, it all sounds the same to me." <laughs> and she'll joke. She's like, "I don't have an accent." And I'm like, "Sure you don't. Sure you don't." <laughs> so. I'm, I've always been interested in kind of that, kind of the, now in the 21st century, well, even in the late 20th century, <clears throat> that if you wanted to be an adventurer, I mean, I guess you can always try to push the envelope and find adventures. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's hard, you at least need the baseline understanding, and it's hard to find really cool adventures if you're not in the military. Right. So it's like, Hey, motherfucker, if you want an adventure, go fucking join the military. Yeah. Um, what, now with your perspective, what's different, what's advantageous about travel? What do you enjoy about travel separate from the military versus when you're in the military? And what kind of experiential takeaways do you have? You know, like, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this. Like, like, for me, like, this is my own bias. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a big fan of tourism because I'm like... You get to see something great. It's awesome, and there and there's and like there's certain things, romantic reasons, family reasons, or just kind of general relaxation. I can tolerate tourism, but I'm like, don't come back and tell me that you know a place unless you've been in a place helping an indigenous people work on their problem set. That's like where you really learn a place. Really. Right. I once had a Ugandan general tell me this. He said, uh, if you really want to know a place. We were not in Uganda when he told me this, I should mention. But he said, if you ever want to know a place, eat the food, speak the language, fuck the women. That's how you learn a place. And obviously, I guess you can do that in the military. <laughs> but I mean, but the military gets you, as, I think, as close as you safely can to that because you're there, you're encouraged to learn languages, you're encouraged to like, immerse yourself, and you're in the problem set. Yeah. So you've got skin in the game. You're not just there as an impartial bystander. Um, whereas as a tourist, it's probably easier to fuck the women, eat the food, and if you want more <laughs> language, but you don't have access necessarily, or at least safely or with left and right limits, to all the interesting things that you might otherwise see because you're not in the military. Yeah. That's kind of my overall global dichotomy between like travel and like travel with a purpose, like you know, military style travel. How do you fall on that? And now somebody that loves travel. Like, how does that sit with you? Like, what do you, how do you feel traveling? What, what difference does it make for you? Yeah, I agree. I, I got to do, like, a tour in, uh, in South Korea and really, like, embrace the culture and sort of live in the country versus just, like, I even think about if I went back now, it's going to feel so different. 
uh, I'll be a tourist. And, you know, when I, I lived in near Osan Air Base, and I also got to work with, you know, the local populace. Like, um, I got to work with the Korean National Police. I used, I used to walk, like, essentially a beat in, like, the outskirts of Seoul. And I really, like, spent thousands of hours just, like, sometimes just watching, like, just observing um, the culture of not just, like, Koreans, but other international people, Americans, how they interact, all the businesses. I got to actually, like, create relationships and bonds with people, also the people I worked with, versus, yeah, I think about if I went back now, like, it's different. I don't know. It's like going back to your old college or something, you know? Everything's changing and growing. Um, For instance, this last time traveling to India, I got to actually, like, have a connection to someone, and they were able to show me not so much the touristy things. The nice thing about motorcycling through, like, Vietnam or India is I did go to places where people were like, how did you get here, you know, like, like off the beaten path? I, I was in a coastal town in uh, Vietnam just taking sort of a scenic route, and this, uh, this student came up to me, and he's like, I go to NYU. What are you doing here? <laughs> he's like, I'm on break. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm on break, too. I'm, I'm traveling, you know, and so he's, uh, he's studying abroad. He's from that town, and he's like, oh, well, if you're lost, go this way. I'm like, I, I think I know. I don't think I'm lost. He thought I was lost. You know, he wanted to help me, which was so nice. And uh, he was just so surprised. His whole life, maybe, he'd never seen, um, like, a solo traveler, maybe, maybe a bus. I don't know. Yeah, but um, I think, yeah, living in the culture, <laughs> learning some language. I went to, like, language exchange, like, courses in Korea. And... Um, of course, yeah, my, I got to spend a month in India. I'll, I'll never get to know, like, that entire country. Sure, sure. Um, I felt like I got such a great swath. Yeah. Um, driving the length of it. Yes, that's yeah. That's a kinetic experience. Like, that's, yeah, that's yeah. more than that. Yeah, I felt, I've done, like, you know, like, my first trip out, out of the middle. Oh, here's a big thing, too, is the freedom. I mean, you know, in Korea, like, don't go too far, you know, right. like... Right. Uh, it's also just a you know intense kind of area, and they, you know, they you can't bring your spouse, can't bring your car. Like you're there for a year, um, and then I remember like that feeling of freedom when you get out of the military, and it's like I could just disappear. <laughs> like, like I traveled Europe for two months backpacking, and what was nice is I was still on active duty. Um, I took sixty days of leave to get out early, and I just hopped cargo planes around Europe. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. And then like, as soon as I got off the plane, I was free, you know, like, you know, I took a few commercial flights where it suited, but that first feeling of freedom. And I also thought, let me sow my wild oats. Let me get my two months of travel and then I'll, you know, I'll roost and I'll like go to school and I'll like be a writer. And then no, that just fueled an addiction after that. Like, you know, I, I think since then I've been tireless like when I go vacation I can't relax like I'm on a motorcycle (laughs) yeah and I mean are you addicted to the freedom do you think it's the freedom that still drives that yeah I mean it it fuels my imagination and creativity the idea that I could just like disappear into another society or just become an expat I don't but like (laughs) or I meet expats um you know I, I met a guy in Vietnam that he had done, you know, his 20 years in the army, 
got out and he just travels like almost aimlessly. And it was just fascinating to pick his brain. I thought about what would that be like? I've met people. One of my first like travel friends that I met was in Rome and he was from India and I I visited the place he was from and I almost connected with him by, by a day, but he told me he left his job and just works at hostels now, you know, meeting people who have that kind of mindset is so interesting and that feeds my creativity as well. But, you know, I've got other things that I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to do a balance. But I think the traveling days are going to slow down more and more, especially when I get uh, finished with my grad program. So it's interesting. Um, I feel like, I mean, tell me how you feel about this, but I always feel like uh, the adventurous side of me would be, is in conflict with the theatrical side of me. Like, if you want to be a novelist, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, travel, you can do all this stuff. Yes. Like you need the place so much for theater that's like, fuck, I, you gotta like love the place you're in and, and roost in that place, yeah. right? Um, and that's how I feel. Do you feel the same way? Is there a little bit of tension when you're like, oh shit, now I gotta confine this to a stage and I can't like, like novel, I could explore a lot more. Yeah. Stage, I gotta be limited by these four walls that this is gonna be in and I'm going to need buy-in from all these other stakeholders in this production. Like, does that start to limit you, and do you find that energizing, limiting? You know, how does that strike you? Yeah, exactly. I think the limitations of theater breed such... You know, it's funny, I speak of freedom, but the, the, the limitations of the different mediums for writers kind of yield, like, these interesting results. And, you know, I write short stories. You know, I intend to write a novel one day, and that's why I try to like sort of soak in all those experiences and let them feed my storytelling. Whereas, you know, maybe this play doesn't take place in India, but I met a guy who, you know, told a story about quitting his job in the rat race attack in India, and now he just travels the world endlessly. That's a character. Like, that's someone that I could easily see in my play. Maybe that character isn't Indian. You know, maybe that character is just someone who like is that's a that's a person I can relate to actually and so it's those people that I want to bring sort of relation to and of course like yeah the limitations of like for instance you know you want to write like a military play it's like how can you encompass the military in a play I think the sparseness of getting characters to talk to each other and the different ways you can mess with timelines or if you want to lean into the three unities and just have a story take place at one set, I've act, yeah, I'm actually, you know, I'm trying to unthink how I'm so obsessed with one set, one place. You know, you read a play like Angels in America, it's so, who thought you could encompass, like, so many topics, or, like, just New York City, like, one second, we're, out, we're outside of a synagogue or a church, the next second, we're in Central Park, and somehow, the way it's written, and the way I've seen it, it, it just works, like, it, like, we buy it. Um, so yeah, like I, I think about, I, I saw recently a friend of mine actually wrote this great like hostile play where, you know, I, I'd always been thinking that's sure. Like maybe one day I'll write like a play where it's a hostile and you got all these international characters. So he had done that and I found it very interesting to see. Um, I don't know if I'm at the place to write my play that's like that yet, but I'm always looking for the environment where you can put unlikely characters together. That is like one thing I like about the military or like I work as a wildland firefighter, like the people I meet with different degrees and backgrounds, parts of the country, sometimes parts of the world doing the same thing together. That's like, okay, you've got unity of like 
people in one place yeah. or like one objective. And so that's like one of the things I touched to like bus stop, um, um, by William Inge, mm -hmm. uh, that was like one of the first plays I read that like they're stuck in a snowstorm in this like bus stop cafe in Kansas. You got like a New Yorker and a California person and they don't like each other, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm projecting whatever these characters. I know one person was like a New England type and then you got this sort of Kansas folks that are like, what are you doing here? You know, those are like putting unlikely characters into a circumstance. I think that's what theater allows you to do. And those are the kind of stories that I'm trying to figure out and find. You know, maybe it's bringing the people to one place versus trying to capture these places. What makes you think something's going to be a play versus a short story or potentially your grand magnum opus novel? Right. I think that's a part of it, right? Like, I think um, some stories... I. I think writers come up with some stories and you just kind of like mark it down. It's like, oh, this feels like a screenplay or this feels like a short story. You know, um, I think there's been a few of these, but um, a picture of a Dorian Gray, you know, Oscar Wilde. I saw a, a stage adaption and I thought to myself, like, wait, the playwright didn't the playwright wrote a novel and somebody else made an adaption. And it's like well, why didn't Oscar Wilde do that? Why did you think to do that? Right. Um, so I am thinking a lot about the format or the medium a story yeah. needs to be told. Yeah. Um, so I think a big part of that is the adventure aspect or something like that, you know, the travel aspect. I do sometimes conceive stories where I'm like, I just don't see this being dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I don't try to force it, you know, <laughs> I, it took me a long time to like decide to write like a, a firefighter play or something. I didn't want to force like, I didn't want somebody pretending to fight a fire on stage. Personally, it's just not my aesthetic. I love that theater. You know, I've seen plays and read plays where people take great risks and they say, "Let's get a design team together and we'll figure out a solution to this." Or you know, make it surreal, make it absurd. I think that's awesome too. Like people have broken through those constraints. And then, so yeah, I really wrestle with like, is this story meant to be on a stage? Can I, can I capture that? And then there, I mean, lately I've, I read, I'll say for instance, like a play, a cost of living, um, by Martina Mayok and the sparseness yeah. of like the way it jumps in time, the way it goes from scene to scene and this almost how limited it is where your brain fills the gaps where the audience is like actively like try you know kind of putting together the puzzle pieces that she doesn't write that fascinates me greatly i'm trying to figure out you know maybe not every play but like plays where that can fit you know that context can fit where uh the you let the audience build circumstances outside of the scene you know, and a lot of actors spend time building those circumstances as well. So that's like a play where maybe someone might think, well, that feels like a movie, you know, like this is such an encompassing story. Um, and she was able to like, with just, just this bare bones, like skeleton, make such a riveting play. So I'm, I'm kind of looking for where places in my life or stories I see where you can get just the meat of something and you can you can kind of build that around it. Yeah. 
why did you get into theater? I mean, so given your passions and your lifestyle and what turns you on, why the, what the fuck drew you to theater in the first place? Yeah, that one, I usually have a joke that goes with it, but I, um, I've always fancied myself a writer. And, um, you know, recently uh, I had a cool exercise for my school where we had to put together sort of a literary tree where like you, a literary tree, kind of like a family tree where you trace the authors that inspire you. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. I went through my timeline and I started to see like these connections to, you know, like, why am I like this, you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, when I was eight, I tried to write a novel because I loved Oliver Twist so much. And I got like three pages in and got lazy and gave up. And then when I was like 11, 12, I don't remember, I think it was like the second grade, I tried to start a newspaper at the elementary school yeah. and immediately was just like couldn't there wasn't enough drama there wasn't enough conspiracy I was starting to invent like <laughs> conspiracies I'm pretty sure I wish I could find those original like one page newspapers I made and I couldn't really enlist my enlist my friends to join like you know they'd say yeah but they're like what do you this is me just like my parents going go ahead yeah like I, I got the principal of that school like I had a meeting with the principal and he's like okay, I got to read it before you print it. But, you know, he like fueled that, like whatever that was. And so I always thought to be a writer, I thought maybe I'd be a journalist. And then, you know, my mom always pushed me towards sort of investigative journalism. She thought that would be a, a good angle for me. And then, you know, like later in life, I thought about conflict journalism. Um, and then I... You know, and then what happens is in high school, I, I moved around my whole life, and I ended up moving to Idaho, and I was so... Why did you move around? Um, my mom's a travel nurse, and my dad's a forester, and so, you know, people off the bat say, like, army brat, and I say, like, close enough. You know, like, forests are kind of like bases. You go to, like, these different ones, and you kind of, you get orders. You go to a different one, and um, so, yeah, just, and also my mom and her father, nomadic, it's like completely a part of our sort of lineage is a sort of nomadic lifestyle. My grandpa worked on uh, like uh, boats going up and down the Missouri and the Mississippi. And uh, so she spent her whole life just like kind of going place to place like that. Um, I guess the way it would more work is he'd like move to a port or an area, work on a boat, be traveling, come back, come traveling, come back, and then go to a different state, go to a different area. So, um, and then when I got to this new high school in Idaho, I just come from like the DC area. I was so fired up on like, I don't know, all the, all the museums and art and writing. And I knew I was going to be in the military. Like that was huge for me. I thought I would go get that experience and still be a writer. Why? Where did that come from? Um, definitely. I think even before I went to this, before I was a freshman, I, it was on the back of my mind um, but I did the like JROTC stuff for freshman and sophomore year, and I really like I loved sort of the community and the teamwork. And we had such a great instructor that had done a whole career in the military, and he was just so real about like he's not like here to serve you up a plate of patriotism, but he's also like this is a, could be a good life and like you know, this is all this, you know, I got to see the world, all these things. 
and um, I was getting really good at all that team stuff, you know, like the drill and the rifle team, and um, that became kind of like my thing that I was focusing on, and then, you know, a couple sports on the side, but that, those were like my sports, and then I moved to Idaho, and I was so distraught to move uh, that I tried to convince my parents to send me to a military school uh, that would like, yeah, this is so weird that I was like, yeah, send me a boarding school. And my parents are like, we can't afford that. And also, we don't want to send you away. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I got to Idaho, and they didn't really have a program like that. So I fell into, like, more into sports. Um, I fell into the theater kids. I mean, all told, I joined a class because of a girl. Uh, and um, and that fizzled out. And then I was just left in this theater class as, like, sort of a brooding you know, teenager, yeah. and uh, my the wonderful teacher, um, Christine Hansen, who had, she lived this life in New York as an actor and all these things, and she came out because her and her husband were working on curating the museum. Like, she wasn't supposed to be in Idaho. Like, I don't think ever in her life she thought, I'm going to move to Idaho. Wow. And so that was great. Like, she told us all these stories of, you know, traveling on national tours and working in theater. And I was, like, inspired by that. I was like, I, I want to go to New York City. Like, um, and then she saw me, like, brooding in the back of this little black box theater and was like, you should, you're going to stage manage the next show. And so I did that, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the problem solving, the magic of the theater, all that stuff. And then we set out to write... Uh, children's plays, like adaptions of children's stories. And I got so, like, overdone with it. Like, I wrote, like, five. You know, every person was supposed to just write one. I came in with, like, four or five of, like, my uh, different children's stories I adapted. And then we went to all the elementary schools and we performed them. And I got such a thrill from, like, how, you know, what do you call that? Sort of, like, suitcase theater. Like, uh that sort of portable theater was so fun and the kids absolutely loved it. And I performed in them, but I never really cared for performing. I really was like so excited to see like this sort of world created and all the people participating in it. And you know, as a stage manager, I was also like managing these things, helping logistics, all that, building the sets. Yeah. And um, that's when I finally found like, maybe this is the medium of writer I want to be because, you know, the other joke for me is like, I watched print media kind of fizzle out as I grew up mm -hmm. and then thought, why don't I pick something more niche <laughs> and like, you know, less likely to make me a living. Yeah, someone's been on the deathbed since like 1977. Yeah. <laughs> I decided to go deeper yeah. into like a career that is just like dead ends left and right, you know. Um, of course, there's still print media, but it's just so much. Right. You know, the New York Times is way less people than it was uh, before the internet, so. Um, so, it seems like all these threads were really there from an early age. Like, none of this, you weren't late to any of this. This was all on brand for you. The military thing, the love of nature, and kind of this desire to travel. Right, memory, yeah. And theater, and writing, right? What, what was the... How much of your writing was theater-based, and how much of it wasn't? How much of it was other kinds of writing as you started to mature? Yeah, now I think about it. Uh, the first full length I wrote um, was sort of my capstone for high school. They had this like new program that year where you had to do like 
some big thing. Maybe it had to do with your life. Like if you want to do fashion, you'd make a fashion show or something. And so I set out to write a full length. And I think many of my teachers, as I was an underperforming student, were like, right. And I, you know, put out like a 90 page hot piece of garbage. But and now that I think about it, every scene was a different location. I, I'd written a Greek uh, I had adapted Sisyphus's story of like you know pushing the boulder and like I had read or heard or some some kind of media told me that he escaped Hades one time he had tricked Hades or Thanatos into you know seeing his love and I thought what if he just kept running like I I wrote this play where you know the first scene is that he's in Greece and he convinces death to let him go because he doesn't want to die and he's so young and you know completely off the rails with whatever greek touchstone is at this point and um i had him go in each scene to a different person uh, meet a different famous figure and kind of be inspired by like what's the meaning of life and he went all the way up until basically you know the 08 housing crisis and each moment was like you know he meets um I think I was inspired by Chekhov, and I was like, he meets a doctor. It was basically Chekhov, and he says, you know, he says, ah, no, like life is living, it's adventure, da, da, da. and this doctor says, no, it's it's like helping others. It's, you know, Chekhov famously wrote something like, you know, each man should build a school, like almost like as if that was his best thing they ever did. He built a school with his hands, and so, you know, it's helping others. And then he meets. Um, he meets a king, and the king says, no, it's power. And then, you know, finally at the end, he meets a Wall Street fat cat type, and he says, you know, no, it's money. And then finally I have the character kind of come to sort of a thing where he's like, okay, you know, I think I figured out what life is to me, and I'm ready to go. And, like, each each scene, like, the Nados is on his tail, is chasing him. And uh, it's like, okay, cool. Now we just talked about all this travel and stuff. I put all these, like, Russia, Greece. Wow. Yeah all these locations and I think that is like a bedrock of like maybe that's me trying to do like this adventure travel thing into a play and then I think since then I haven't it's funny and I also had an obsession with one set and that play I mean must have had six or seven different sets and scenes completely unstageable (laughs) it's um did I hear you say that you were not a good student Oh, horrible. I am, I brag about it. I, that seems weird. I had a 1.7 GPA in high school. Were you just not into school? I'm assuming, because you don't, I mean, first off, most people that are struggling in school don't have a passion for writing, right? And then your JROTC background, all that, like, so there's some discipline. Mm-hmm. You're doing sport, like, there's a lot of, very positive indicators, so that seems strange. What was the reasoning behind that? I, um, the, the thing that I could maybe put a pin in, but it, I hate excuses, is I transferred high schools the first week of freshman year. So I showed up to my second high school in D.C. with freshman transcripts that were definitely incomplete, and I think somebody just shoved me into sophomore classes. And I didn't realize it. Look at me thinking I'm a prodigy or something, and I'm with sophomores. And it took me a while to realize I was with 10th graders. Um, I'm in AP English. 
uh, I'm in AP math, like uh, geometry or something, having not taken algebra, having never learned how to write, uh, how to even cite, I never didn't know what a citation was. And so the first week, you know, professors are like, oh, you remember that thing from last year, from your last professor? Let's, let's write this AP paper uh, with the citations and everything. And I absolutely like just crashed. And my mom had no idea, like I never really communicated like, I was like, am I dumb? Like, what's going on? Like, I'm, and I think in retrospect, we finally realized, I mean, halfway through the semester or trimester or whatever, my mom was finally getting like notifications of like, your kid is like crashing, you know, at school. And so we got to come and meet teachers and the teachers are finding out with my mom that I'm a freshman. Perhaps I just, you know, I can't really remember that well. I was quite shy. Um, and then finally, you know, they switched me into proper classes. Now I'm like halfway through a semester trying to figure out algebra. And that teacher, because I don't communicate well enough, thinks I just switched from another algebra class. He doesn't know that I've been doing jack all for half a semester trying to figure out shapes. And so then that meeting comes up towards the end of the semester. And you know my mom's being brought in because I'm failing that class. And he says, Oh, I, didn't, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. And I remember him being, you know, kind of rude to me about it. You know, like, how do you not get this? Like, right, right, right. and he kind of apologized profusely. I felt like guilt on his end. And he said, "You could retake all the tests. Well, I'll work through it with you." And we did, but it just, it was just not going to happen. I wasn't going to be able to put th those pieces, those building blocks together. And then from then on, I think I just, it just, I just rode that wave of just like never being able to like sort of get back to the crest. And me thinking at that point how badly I want to go to like West Point or or something like that was like not going to happen. And JROTC was like I would skip class and go to that, or I would spend way too much time doing that. And the instructor in that class could see your grades. Like the JROTC instructor is like you need to have good academic performance. He pushed me to do better. He gave me that structure. Um, you know, I stumbled out of sophomore year into my new school in um, Idaho and kind of just got into that, and yeah, I just dragged my feet. I was good at English, good at history, bombing math generally, not putting in the time. And um, I, you know, I, I started doing this, it's funny to admit, but like I, I wrote essays for money. Like I started writing essays wow. for like other students, and instead of, like I'd write my essay, and I'd do fine in English, but I wouldn't do any of the other homework. So I just uh. totally, so I just leaned so hard into either JROTC or writing or theater, and just neglected everything else. And then, you know, I'm, it's proud to say, like, my undergrad, you know, I went to the military, all those things. I did school while I was in the military, like, voraciously. Like, I tackled classes constantly. Um, community College of the Air Force, State Fair Community College. And I'm, like, in the middle of an exercise in Korea, like, typing an essay on my phone, yeah. doing fine, like, you know, 3.5 and up GPA. I went to undergrad here. I did fine, you know, like, 3.8. I went to the new school and I transferred into there. I knocked out uh, creative writing. Okay. I wanted to go for theater and they convinced me since I was a veteran and all these things that I should do this other program. And I thought, okay, well, can I take writing classes, uh, playwriting classes? And they went, sure. And then I went to the school and they're like, yeah, you can't take those, those playwriting classes. You can only take the general ones. Those ones for the theater kids. So I... So I kind of dragged my feet through that. You know, I did fine. Actually, what I enjoyed was all the different types of writing it exposed me to, like sure. criticism. Like sure. that's one of the hardest. I took a class on criticism, like dance, food, theater. 
unbelievable. I couldn't like it was such a cool experience. So I, I'm not griping about all those things as much as I am like I, I messed up. I didn't read the details, you know, on on this other program, the bachelor's adult program, and so yeah. And then now I'm I got like a you know I'm straight A's through my grad school. Like of course it's so focused on what I want to do that like that seems like a you know not the same. But uh, but yeah, I often go to other people and be like. I had a 1.7, you know, and they're like, can you graduate with a 1.7? I'm like, I think so. I think I, I think I did. So when you left high school, what did you think you were going to do? I mean, you knew you were going in the military, but did you think that was a career at that point? No, I think, I mean, even, you know, when the recruiter's trying to strong arm, strong arm you into a six-year contract for a $2,000 bonus, I was like, no, 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 four years, and maybe if I want, I'll do more, you know, for the Air Force, it's either four or six when I was going. And I really wanted to do, I wanted to be a pararescue man. So I like, I was 18, like 130 pounds, wasn't even heavy enough to get, you know, I, you had to be 140 at my height. And my recruiter's like, sure. <laughs> yeah. So I started swimming and working out all those things. And I just knew I wanted to do like my, my time, like do some service maybe be in the guard afterwards, like, you know, that always seemed like an option down the road. I always knew I want to come to New York City. I want to be a writer. I thought maybe there's some way I can do that in New York City. You know, I've, I listened to you talk about it a little bit, like being able to get kind of local to New York City and have a career. So I thought, you know, maybe something reminiscent of that. Um, I, I, yeah, I always knew I was going to the military. I always figured maybe a theater degree was not going to really translate to, you know, like I didn't really, I'd, I'd been sold on the whole be enlisted, not an officer thing, even in high school from from the sergeant, the retired sergeant who was teaching. And I was like, yeah, I really don't want to be behind a desk. And, I, you know, I was just, I'm just so, I wanted these big things. And so um, I went and enlisted. I just thought like, Everything points to go enlisted, do classes while I was in. I got all those prereqs out of the way. Why did you want to do college at all? Being that, so it seems like you're only interested in what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. That's where you're going to excel anyway, right? And then you didn't have a great academic record, so it's like, I mean, did you just want to get it back and go, no, motherfuckers, I can't get AIDS. I just didn't want to or something. Was there some? Was a hubris or like, well, because you you know you're going into a career that doesn't require right. degrees, right? Yeah. You got the military anyway, it's paying bills, so you don't need a degree there. Yeah. What was the, what was the need to, to, to get these degrees? There was, there was probably a moment where I was on the fence at 18 of just moving to New York City okay. and just, like, being a bar back and, like, trying to, trying to do... That was definitely, like, I think I told my girlfriend at the time, like, we should just move to New York City. Like, we'll, we'll work in theater. She's an actress. We'll work in theater. We'll just, like, right. we'll figure it out. And I totally could have done that. But then I always still want to get that service in. And I think just to satisfy my parents, like, get that degree. I love, you know, making the crack about it. I mean, a creative writing degree, like a playwriting degree, like, you know, just pieces of paper to me. But, I mean, I'm, you know, but I'm proud to have earned them, but I'm not as proud of them as I am of, like, earning, like, my belt buckle for firefighting or, like, the certain things that I earned in the military, those accomplishments are like, right. I'm way more proud of those and the, the work I put into them. <clears throat> but, you know, then, then it's like, okay, let me get the bachelor's to 
appease my parents because maybe all this idea of freedom, like I don't really have those parents who like, you know, I needed to go to med school or anything, but like they were like, you're going to go to college, you know? And I was like, let me do that. And then tell them like, here, here's my creative writing degree. Like, I'm going to go do this. You know, at some point I finally told my mom, like, I don't think you're going to see like me do that whole white picket fence, 20 years career, you know, grandkids in this, in the traditional way. Like, I'm just so dead set on this. And I had to, like, build the confidence to tell her that. And that was post-military when I told her that. Did you need, like, the bona fides to become a writer with your parents? Did you need to go, hey, I do have a piece of paper that says I'm a qualified writer. Like, there's something, like, there's something that you need some substantiation. Otherwise, it's just, well, that's just Dakota going on a trip here. Like, yeah. he thinks he's going to be a writer. But you need some, am I reading too much into that? Or was that a, a part of the reasoning? Maybe. You know, even I got a creative writing degree, I didn't feel like a writer. I only just got around to calling myself a playwright, like, and not feeling like it doesn't sound right. <laughs> right. And... Well, because you know the truth. Yeah. You know it doesn't mean anything. But I'm wondering, yeah. for parents' sake, was it kind of like, hey, guys, see, this is a piece of paper that says I'm doing this, so therefore I got to go do this because I have this degree and that means something. Like, yeah. Uh, that yeah, to, to be, like, bonafide by yeah. the paper. I think... You know, I even told them, like, I don't know, maybe when I go to the military, I get a degree in something useful, and I'm a writer, you know, like right. the survival job, whatever right. it is. Right. I, I think I flirted with getting, like, a stage manager degree, because I, I do enjoy that work, and I like being in the world. So I think for my mom, it was, like, just get a degree. Like, she has always believed in me as a writer. She's, you know, such an avid reader, and I've, I've told her she needs to write. Um, that that's always been on the table. She said, cool, just, we'll do this one thing for me. Like, like get a degree so that you're more valuable in the workforce, whatever. Those things that are important to her as a first generation in her family to get a, a degree. And I think first of her siblings even to get a degree. And so, and I always felt that, and she maybe she wants that legacy continued or... You know, she just she sleeps better at night knowing the bachelor's degree in creative writing could at least make me become an officer in the military. You know, if I go back, right. you know, right. something like that. So you go into the military knowing it's going to be a stint, essentially. I think I'm always open. You know, I think I created this these timelines for myself that I'm like, that's OK if I stretch it a year or two or um, there's like three vital moments towards the end of my military career that I was like, oh, my God, I. I could, they always, you know, right at the end, they give you these little, they dangle these carrots in front of you. Like I had a chance to maybe go work on like Air Force One or something. And I was like, oh, that would be such an experience. Like, but do I want to commit like three more years just so I could be like, yeah, I was, I flew on Air Force One, you know, like I really wrestled with these opportunities towards the end of my career, which was going well. Like I made staff in like three years, staff sergeant in like three years. And when I was getting out, everyone in my unit was like, what are you going to do? Where, where do you think you're going to go? Like, you know, um, <laughs> like people were just baffled. Because yeah, right. I also like, you know, I, I would get accused of like bleeding blue. I was like, I just loved, I loved it. Like I really showed up and I tried my best and I made great friends. So, but I love having these different careers. You know, I went to firefighting afterwards and I, love that too and like people once again my mentors are like so like when you become a leader right. you're going to do this this and that and I go oh, no 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 like this is a 
this is a stint for me. But I was always open to if my heart carried me into a full career in the military, that was definitely nothing that I put like a, a, a firm X on, like that I wouldn't go further. So did you know about PJs, I'm assuming, before you went in the Air Force? You, had you done your, it sounds like you'd done your research and you knew what service to go to and what job you wanted to do. My bottom line, I went to all the recruiters, and I was like, I want to be a medic. I want to be in the field. Why why medic? Uh, My mom's a nurse. Actually, all of her siblings are medical. Um, That always felt like, I always felt like I wanted to be in the field and maybe doing something like that, you know, like helping people live. Um, I, I never was like, you know, I never wanted to like stack bodies or anything like that, you know, as, as the Marines love to say. And I thought a, a Navy corpsman, I want to be with those guys and I'm down for whatever I need to do for, you know, the military. I know what it is. I know what I signed up for, but I always picture myself like helping people. And, you know, like recently I just got my EMT and I feel like I've come around to that in a different way. But I didn't know about PJs until I went to all the recruiters and I said, I want to be a medic. I want to be in the field. Then the Navy was like, we can't promise that. The Army was like, uh, you're ASVAB, you should do this. And the Marines were like, we can't promise you shit. Like, right. maybe you can, you know, go do, you know. Uh, and then the Air Force is like, actually, <laughs> we can send you straight to pararescue, jumping out of planes, saving lives. And that immediately, like, I was 17, my eyes like glazed over and, uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, once again, I went to maps like 132, and my recruiters like drink lots of water. You're not heavy enough. And like, I was just skin and bones and I gained like 20, 30 pounds. Like I, I, I quit whatever, like my, like, uh, I was working at fast food and I got a job as a roofer and I just went and just lugged like tiles on the rooftops and I swam and did all that stuff. But yeah, I, I think bottom line, like, you know, is like as if I went back, it's like I still wish I could have just maybe went in and been a corpsman. Like, mm-hmm. I think no regrets. Like, whatever job I was going to do, I was going to do it the best I could. And I, I really tried. Like, I did security forces uh, for the Air Force. I got to go run around, you know, with rifles. And I got to do a lot of that cool training. Um, but even then... I wanted to be the guy carrying the first aid kit. I wanted to go to combat lifesaver course. I wanted to do all that extra stuff that made me, uh, you know, a better warrior and, and made me possibly like better equipped to help my friends. What happened with PJ? What happened with going to the pipeline? I just, uh, just brass tacks, like 18. I didn't have it. I, I never grew up swimming. I like started going to the pool and I was like, ah, this isn't, this isn't natural for me. And I, you know, read all the books and I had, they had a PJ come down and put me through my paces and that was all great. And then, you know, you get that narrative of like, do you want to wait around here in Idaho, like training for maybe doing that? Or do you want to like go in the military, get some time, grow up a little and get big, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, yeah you know what? Like I I can't sit in this town any longer. And so I went off to be security forces thinking, Oh yeah, I'll get so much time to work out and stuff. And then, you know, finding out that security forces are like 
the most like doggedly overworked. Like I was working 16 hour shifts, going home and just passing out Panama schedules. There's never enough people. There's never, they're always taking your day off to train and everybody's getting fat because we're just sitting in a guard tower eating garbage and, you know, and a couple of my friends are PJ dropouts and they're just so like, they made it halfway through the pipeline and they're so negative. And I just, I did my job the best I could, but I realized quickly, like I had to get up at 4am to go to guard mount the armory to show up for my 6am shift. I couldn't get up at two to go to the pool. I just wasn't. And I eventually accepted that. I went to nukes first, which is just also just another layer of like the most brutal, like horrible hazing, like horrible conditions. And I had to like really fight just to get out of like that. And then, then I went to Korea and it was just, yeah, it just wasn't fitting into my, my big picture. So I'm assuming it was an easy decision to leave the military. Aside from those like three dangled carrots that I call them, I mean, yeah, I made it sound so bad, but the problem is too, I loved it. Like that's me telling you all the factors of why I couldn't get to the gym, but I showed up to like nukes, like with such a, like, let's go. Like, you know, I, I did get more physically fit. I just was never hitting the pool. You know, I love the people I worked with. It was always those people above you, like those jaded. Some people spent six years at that same base and never deployed like you you don't deploy from nukes and you're stuck there because once you get that clearance yeah. they don't want to pay for someone else to get it yeah. Yeah. and i hit the button on the website of like I, I tried to go to the combat cameraman base there's all these little extras i tried to go into the tops in blue you ever heard of those guys the tops in blue is like the talent show for the air force they travel over the world and they, they've been around since like the korean war wow. Uh, and then they fizzled out the year that I like hit the button on that. Like months later, an email goes out and says like, they've kind of shut down the tops in blue. I met someone at my program, an actor. She's, she retired from the air force. She was in my first year. She had done that tour twice. You, you do like a what, year, what did they do on you know, like that sort of, I was going to say Bob, uh, Bob Hope kind of like thing. I, I mean, basically, I think what it could have looked like back in his day was Bob Hope tells some jokes, Tops and Blue comes on after and does a song and music, talent. People in the Air Force who have a talent, they invite you to a twice a year audition if it's singing, instruments. So I thought, man, I could do lights and sound. I could do roadie stuff. And then when I moved to New York City, I'll already be good to go. And so like I was trying that I was in, I was at Whiteman Air Force Base, just hitting that button. And then that fizzled out and I was like, Korea, Turkey, like get me to one of these. Those are the ones that like, they're not, you know, like I think different branches call them a deployment, different branches call them a tour. And I was like, I hit that button. And as soon as I got that, I remember they installed a flat screen in the armory that listed who all got orders. And I remember standing in armory and seeing that name, my name pop up and everyone hating me. Like, especially the ones who've been there six years who had hit that button every three months. Like you just, you, you try to, you, you like opt in for orders. So why did you get orders and they didn't? Just, uh, luck of the draw, like, um, just, and maybe, you know, you start to do that thing of like your dream sheet doesn't exist. Like that dream list of bases. That's not a thing. That's what they tell you. 
And I was like, whatever, I'm still going to try. Like it's going to number one on my list was the two places in Korea, one, two, and then in Sirlik, Turkey, which was also considered like a one year tour. And then the deal was you do that, you're going to go somewhere else. But then some people did come back to nukes. So like you meet some guy and he's like, yeah, I did Korea and I'm back. Like no choice. You know what I mean? And so, uh, but yeah, I remember just jaded, like people in their mid twenties who had just wasted away at this base. And then finally, when I left, they made a new system. I won't say what it is, but it's like two year, four year, like cycles. But some people spent retired out of that base. Wow. Wow. So when you leave the military, what comes next? I did um, that sort of 60 day trip backpacking. And I thought, okay, cool. Like, oh, wildfire fighting, huge, like for the two years leading up to me getting out, I was like, that's my next chapter. Okay. Uh, my dad, dad right? yeah, my dad, was he BLM or was he forest service? Forest service the whole way. I think for him, he might've dabbled in BLM, but like when you're doing the seasonal work, you can just switch around. Um, he was, um, on an engine, uh, and he worked on a type two hand crew initial attack for a while out of, uh, Idaho city. And, uh, I mean, a couple years after he left, a hotshot crew sprung up out of there. So I think a lot of people he worked with, you had to, like, spend two years to get, become a hotshot crew. And he told me, like, ever since I uh, was old enough to remember, like, stories about, like, hotshots. And he'd take the piss out of them, too. He'd be like, oh, we call them hotshits, you know, like, smoke jumpers, jumper bros. Like, the kind of thing the military does, too, you know, like, where you kind of, like... But anyways, he told me stories of that. And I was like, wow, I, I'll never be that tough. Like, I'll, like as a kid, I was like, that'd be so cool. Like, it's like, yeah, just like any boy who's like, well, I'll be a fireman one day. I'll never be like that. I can't see myself. And then, I don't know, the military gave me the confidence to be like, fuck it. Like, I'm going to, I want to be a hotshot. Like, and so I was reaching out to different crews before I was getting out. And they're like, cool, like, you know, get a season in. Um, so I got a season in on a, a Type 6 engine that, pretty much the smallest engine in Southeast Idaho. I went to uh, the academy for it, the, the, the little academy they had locally. And whose crew was it? Was it just a local? This is a Bear River zone outside of uh, Montpelier, Idaho, which is close to Paris, Idaho, which is the most southeast town. And there's, there's um, so a little municipalities. I mean, are they follies? Or are they- this was a forest service. Okay. Um, in the same district as, um, as my, as my dad works in and just a different, completely different side of the district to drive through it four hours and still forest service, still Still, a lot of times college kids seasonal. These are for, I mean, this kind of crew is for kids who want to get some like life experience, pay some bills for college. And that's what my dad did. He paid for forestry school by every summer going out and fighting fires and they get fires, but not as often as like hot shots. It's like, you know, I got on a fire like once every month, didn't spend like two weeks on it, but it was still like to get the, the start going on the career. And then I, um, I went to New York city. I went to the, the new school. Like, so yeah, I, I, it was, just, it was just like spring, left the military, traveled, did my first season. Yeah. Um, got real dirty, did fires. And then like, I remember I had to say no to a fire and just go to school. And I came like, I skipped like the, the orientation. I was transferring anyways. I didn't need that freshman thing. So, I mean, there's so much of this that's 
that I can relate to is mm -hmm. what I think it is. But it, yeah. do you identify? Do you, were you always identifying as a writer who's just busy doing some other things and having some cool experiences to stockpile kind of your whole ammo shack of experiences that you can leverage? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Just voraciously trying to get that sort of live to try and live yeah. and get life in there. What do you think? I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about? What ultimately scratches that itch? Or, or does it ever get scratched? I mean, for you, when you think about making it, I'm using my air quotes here, is that you sitting in a room reminiscing and ex exploiting all these different experiences creatively? Or is it doing a little bit of that, but then go right back out, and I gotta get back, I gotta go on a ship, or I gotta find something new? Like, what do you see? What's your trajectory? What's the dream? I've started to finally indulge in kind of more like the artist aspect of being a writer. Like the idea that I just, I want to experience life. And I don't think I really enjoy all these other experiences. Like they're selfishly so enjoyable and potentially beneficial to my writing. So like if I didn't enjoy traveling, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it just to become a better writer. So I'm just, I'm starting to lean more into like, you know, some of those people you look up to where it's like, I'm trying to enjoy now just as much as I want to have successes, you know, with theater or writing or something like that. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't picture myself exploiting all those experiences. Sometimes my writing is like complete, it seems completely unrelated to all this travel and adventure. Right, sure. You know, I, I wrote an absurdist play recently where it's more like society. And yeah, all those writers that I love, you know, the letters they write to their friends about what they're thinking about in their lives. And then I'm, you know, it's like reading like Tennessee Williams letters about like the society in Italy or traveling. And, you know, it's not, it's not always like the microcosm that he analyzes. So I'm trying to like get music and film and paintings and art into my life. It feeds my soul. And then I'm hoping like I want... I'm making such good friends and collaborators in theater. I'm trying to just like kind of live a good life. A service is a huge part of that for me. So, you know, my, my image is success, which has been asked like recently, you know, in one of our classes is like, I think I just, I love being in the game. Like I love, I want to be in the circles of writers. I just went to an event today where it's like, oh, I actually know people in this room. This is cool. Like, like when I, I met you at, um, the Arts and Armed Forces, like, reading for the last Bridge Award, and I actually thought you were a judge on that because you recognized my name, and I really initially thought, oh, you must have been a judge on this one, and then you had mentioned you'd read my play, and that was, like, one of the first times where I was like, ah, like, someone I haven't met or, like, in the artistic community, like, like there's name recognition, and I'm starting to see all these, like, connections. And I don't know, I, I just, I, you know what I really want? I want that like sort of just post Paris Lost Generation salon so bad. And I know it just doesn't, there's different ways that life is different now that's so cool that, you know, we can do this conversation across the world. Yeah. But um, yeah, I want to like be in the artist community, be a part of it. I'm not too focused. I want to be good. I'm trying to write the best thing I can write but I'm just not too focused on like the end goal. I'm trying to live in the moment. That's something that I learned over the last 
few years of being in New York that I've tried to process like what is my idea of success and it's like I'm working on a play right now and I'm going to rehearsal tonight and last night and I'm having so much fun I'm also like producer on that quote unquote self-producing mm-hmm. and it's like I'm actually having fun like doing all these like things it's kind of yeah. military firefighter stage manager part of me likes accomplishing goals and tasks yeah. and communicating connecting with people so yeah my new like idea of success is like for some of these playwrights I look up to to be their friend or like to see them at events and like get to workshop with them right if a fire came up would you take it like a during the summer to fly out well right now I mean another I'm so sprawling with these things so I apologize but like I got my EMT certification last summer and I thought, how can I, I mean, last summer, it was cool. It felt like I was growing, but it's the first time I spent summer in New York City. And I think about last, lost my mind. I think this proves I need, I need nature. Like, I was always getting this great dichotomy of, of the forests and New York. I loved it. Man, I, I, would, I flew off a helicopter on a mountaintop in Colorado, got on a plane in Denver, landed and went straight to class the same day. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just... I walked a class on Fifth Avenue at the new school, corner windows, looking over the, the most famous street in the world, like the most expensive, I mean. And I just sat in that in such a way that was so internal that no one in the room knows. Like, I don't even tell people, like, yeah. the other parts of my life. And I'm just sitting there and I'm, I'm all right, I'm in theater mode now. Like, I'm learning about uh, uh, dramaticism in the body or something like that was the class and we're meditating to start the class we're like (laughs) we're closing our eyes and she's trying to meditate we're in a forest and I'm like I just came from a forest like (laughs) but I don't say those things I just like internalize it and uh, what a just it was one like a milestone or a beautiful moment for me and um so yeah so I got my EMT and I'm thinking okay there's these teams that work on fires um they're, they're called uh, REMS teams. That's like rapid extraction uh, medical service or something. And there's those ambulances and medics that uh, go to the fires and they go to the different uh, sides of the fire. And I think maybe that might be part of my next chapter, working ambulances in New York City in the winter, going out to fires. I think there's a way where I can literally fly from New York to the nearest airport, uh, show up, with my team and work on a fire. They're like windows like that. So you're saying separately from that, working riding in the box, doing ambulance rides in the city is, I mean, I've been out of the fire service for a while. Yeah. I'm assuming it still doesn't pay that much. I mean, was that a day job or is that literally just getting your adrenaline on while you're writing during the day or something? I'll, I'll tell you what, it pays better than, being a medic here, or I mean, an EMT here, okay. but I mean, and firefighting paid less than being an EMT here. It's, it's, it's a shame sure. really. Like I don't complain cause I enjoy the work, but I feel bad for people who have families in these things. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of the play I wrote about firefighting is just like grappling with the idea that people do this and they don't, and you know, I make more money hanging some lights in a theater in New York. I get it. You know, it's whatever, but yeah, yeah. I get inherent guilt. Like if I work past 10 on this gig, I get time and a half. You do not get time and a half on a fire. We work 
24 hours and they actually take eight away because you're legally not supposed to charge 24 hours in a row. It's illegal. So they have to play games with the hours. Um, I will say for working like basically a contractor on a fire, it's kind of like being a contractor in the military. They make the actual money. So ironically, you know, like I want to work on these. I actually have a guilt aspect to that too, where it's like, okay, I get to be on one of those teams where I get to hike in with the hot shots and they're going to work their ass off all day and I'm going to get paid more than them. And that is hard to grapple with too. Like I, I'm actually wondering how I will react to getting to be with, you know, a team of one or two other people, you know, hotshot crew is very kind of militaristic in a way that I enjoy where it's like their structure and we all, we eat together, we sleep together um, we, we make sure we have our battle buddy. Like we make sure everybody's, we got our back. And then there's the medic who kind of rolls out in a, in a, in an ambulance or a, a, a four wheeler. And it's such a necessary part yeah. of this yeah. whole construct, but I'm not going to be digging line. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be ready to react. I'm going to stay fit and all those things. But yeah, I guess I'm I'm wondering how I'm going to feel internally about that if I get into that in, in, into one of those contractors. Let's let's just stop for a second. Just we we should probably do a little bit of digging. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Wildland firefighting thing. Because yeah. uh, uh, I don't want to gloss over stuff that people might not the knowledge that people might not take for granted. Right. So, um, talk about wildland. Uh, for you, um, first off, most people don't have any idea how fucking exhausting it is. I think people have started to wrap their heads around it because uh, David Goggins, oh yeah, you know, was like out doing wildland firefighting because you couldn't find anything harder. Yes, yeah. That hopefully gives people an idea of like how hard wildland firefighting is. For you, what's what's been the most challenging thing? Is it getting down to mineral soil? Like what 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 breaks you? physically when you're doing it oh my god every year i would go to my hotshot crew get on the no even the hikes the death hikes that we do to start it the runs up the mountain we was in colorado very our our backdrop is mountains we'd jog up to the top of it (laughs) and do push-ups and you know all that stuff i love that I, i hate it and i love it you know and you know in the military they say you're getting paid to work out you know what i loved i was getting paid to work out hourly like, you know, I'd show up at 8 a.m. or whatever it was. I'm on the clock. I'm getting paid. I, it actually was real because, you know, what they say in the military, they go, you're, you're getting paid to work out. And it's like, yeah, like not enough. And by the month and I work, wait, if I do the math on the hours, it's sad, you know, when you do the math. Uh, so that was cool. I was like, oh, I actually am. When someone yelled it during a run, I was like, yeah, I am on the clock right now. Like, yeah, yeah I'm going to get this run. I'm getting paid to run. Um, and so you get to your first fire and your hands are soft and your feet are soft and you know by the end of it you're just you know so messed up like body wise like by the end of it just there's no level of tiredness I've I can't even uh, but then I miss it so much I mean the first fire you get on I always think I should what am I doing like I should quit like this is unbelievable like this is not nobody in their right mind should be doing this yeah, just like 16 hours or more of just beating the earth, my hands bleeding, like all my calluses just popping and like just seeing the handle stained with blood and and somehow still loving it. And like I'm next to like, 
you know, 18 other firefighters and most of them are twice my size and we're all just putting our heads down and just digging and you know hot shots get the privilege of usually getting to light off the fires the backfires and seeing that just beautiful like an ocean of fire like you can't capture it in any way like that's the hard thing about writing a play it's like i could never capture that how do i do it in other ways or how do i capture other aspects but no, the brutality of that work, like my body is just so beat, like I can feel it now. Um, and like just humping a chainsaw over your back. Like I loved when, you know, I read David Goggins book right now, uh, listen to it and him talking about like, yeah, like sharpening your, your chainsaw and like cleaning it after like in the dark with the headlamp on. And all you want to do is just lay down in the dirt, like never better have I slept than just sometimes not even putting out like a pad, just laying on top of my sleeping bag in like the Arizona desert, <laughs> worrying about if a scorpion will get me, but really not, and just out, like completely out, and then waking up and your body just doesn't want to move, and just doing it again for 14 to 21 days. Like there's no other job outside of the military that I can think of, and that's why when my friends get out of the military, I'm like, have you thought about <laughs> You love to hate that. You love to suck. Yeah. Come, yeah. come fight fires on a shot crew. Like, yeah. yeah. I, every year I thought about quitting, and I didn't. And that, and I could quit. You know the difference between yeah. the military. Yeah. The military, you get shot if you try to leave. Right. On a fire, you could just be like, I want to go home. Like, yeah. there's a lot of shame in that. But like, they would, like, they're not going to tell you you can't. Right. They'll get you a ride to the nearest town at least. And some people do. A lot of people quit hot shotting like after the first fire, midway yeah. through the season. Some people never come back. I couldn't believe I came back. Like every year that I, I did it for four years, I thought I could do two. Like I thought if I could just get through the first one, and they say you're not a real hot shot until you've done two back to back. And that's when they give you your buckle. Some crews, they give you like this buckle. It's like one of the proudest things. Like I worked so hard, way harder for that than anything else in my life. Um, and to feel a part of that group you know like the other people on that crew had been doing it for i mean some people been doing 18 20 plus years i can't i can't believe it yeah do you have identity crises ever do you ever walk i mean just walking around the street and you're like you know a fucking wildland firefighter you know or you know i'm an air force vet or i'm a writer i'm a playwright you know, like, do you ever, does that ever, just because you're passionate about so many disparate things, like, how do you, or do you have kind of a holistic, even-keeled view where you're like, well, I'm just Dakota and there's all these parts of me and whatever, I'm very at peace with all that. Or is there something about you that does identify at various moments with different aspects of yourself? Oh, exactly. That's one of the, yeah. I give myself, like, stolen valor. I'm yeah. like, I just told you all that stuff about firefighting. I didn't do that. Like, I'm like in New York City, like, you know, wearing comfortable clothes. Like, I've never, my hands are soft. Yeah. Yeah. I've never worked a day in my life. You know, I love that. Some guy, this old guy in my crew would say, Sylvie, you never worked a day in your life. And I'm like, really? All that time in the military? I've been on this crew two years. And I just love that he'd say that. Yeah. Um, no, really, I, I switch. I think it's part of my nomadic lifestyle, too. I switch personas. If I tell an actor, which I don't often unless it's like necessary that I've been in the military or fire. It's really fun when someone thinks they know me and think, oh, I was a firefighter. And then I say, yeah, I lived in Korea. You know, 
a year later they find that out. They're like, what? Who are you? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, even in, on my wildfire crew, I remember hiking into a fire and mentioning like a story about being a cop in the military. And someone looks back at me and goes, you weren't a cop. You, you, I could not see you writing a ticket. And I was like, I did, you know, like, or even like in the military, like, I just can't see you. And it's like, what? I'm out here. Like if I can do a fire, you can't, my, um, you know, when I come to theater, it's all a totally different energy. And obviously the, you know, being on time and being respectful, all those things I bring from all these other aspects of my life. And I get frustrated, you know, with New York, you know, there's, with people not being on time, all those things, you know, blame the subway, which happens. But, um, and I have to like tell myself, like, relax. This is, you know, this isn't a fire. This isn't the military. Um, and yeah, like, Nobody would, people, if they look at me like, this guy's probably been in New York his whole life. He looks like he's, you know, like a finance bro, like, or something, you know? Like, yeah. So I think I, I legitimately watch people's faces react when I tell them a story like that, like digging line and bleeding, you know? And they're like, I just can't, they can't picture it. They can't fathom it. And I, sometimes I can't either. I get, yeah, real identity crisis about it. I'm like, did that happen? Like, I, I literally have like a fear that someone's going to ask me like, what, don't ask me what units I've been in. You know, like, I'm like, what units was I in in the Air Force? I really, do you remember? Like, I, I do, uh, but there are, but I know what you mean. There are some things that people will say and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, like acronyms or sayings or, yeah. or something like that. But generally, generally, I think I, I mean, I haven't been quizzed on it. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember all the units, but but no, I mean, it is funny the kind of things that slip, and I think there is something about if you have many very different things that you've done in life, like, something's going to leak out. Something's going to yeah. spill out of your brain that you're just going to forget because you've had to invest so much bandwidth in something else, Yeah. and I think, I think that's right. I, think that's I right. worry about that. Yeah, the more I switch gears, yeah. I'm like, maybe I should journal more. Or like, or, or write down in a way that yeah. you forget, you know. So I can't remember if we talked about this before, but um, uh, did, did we talk about War Wound and Phil Korth, one of the guys we took on as one of our resident artists? No, I don't think mu not much, at least okay. maybe in passing. It was, it was interesting because um, God, I haven't even had him on the show yet. But anyway, um, he uh, so he was a Marine reservist, and he wrote a play about his unit when it was in Kuwait before it went into Iraq. And that was just what the play was about. And the best part of the play was the dialogue. Like, it, it just, it's such barracks banter. Yeah. It's like, fuck, god damn. Like, like, people get chills. Like, listen, like, oh my god, that took me back 20 years. Yeah. I, I, you know those conversations. And, um, but he wrote the play in, I want to say, like, nine, ten years after he was there. I was like, how the fuck did you get that? I was like, well, when I got back, I wrote down all the dialogue. Yeah. Of course he did. Yes, because you're not fucking writing that dialogue now. Yeah. And is there? And, and so I'm saying this to say, um, is there a party talking about forgetting unit names? Is what I worry about in my own writing is I go, I've lost the scent. I can't hear these voices anymore. Fuck! I just had them three years ago. I would have had this. Yeah. But it's it's dated, and it's like if you don't get it down. Does that scare you at all? Does that worry you at all? Where you go, I have so many, like for me, I always think of it like a, I'm like, I got I to gotta feast off this fucking meal in front of me and I can't think about anything else. I don't want to get any more experiences until I got rid of this. Yeah. I got to capture this. 
and then and then now I can process more. But if I haven't fucking done it, I'm like, I'm gonna lose it. Because it's not gonna be purely military, purely whatever the vibe is. It's gonna be infiltrated by this other shit. That, yeah. Which is also really interesting, but needs still bandwidth, you know? Does that happen to you with all the different things you're doing? Yeah, totally. I. That's a fear. Maybe that's why getting closer proximity back to wildfire fighting, like, yeah. you know, as a medic, maybe it'll get me close enough that I can get to the banter again. And yeah. And also it changes, I assume, you know, like yeah. I kind of made me think of like Tim O'Brien, like the things they carried, like the second he got separated from his unit, that feeling of, of like, ah, I'm not like, I don't even know the jokes anymore. Like, you yeah. know, like they come back and visit him or perhaps the narrator and he and I remember like really connecting with that. I read that after the military mm-hmm. and uh, and thinking about like oh yeah like you know or like um, Hemingway's like a soldier's home short story where like you just he meets another person who's you know you got out and he meets a young person who's in the military and he can't even communicate with them anymore and that's such a, like a I guess just a hard truth to swallow um, which those writers were able to capture for me and I think about like yeah what if the slang's different or like I'm, I don't have it anymore. Like well, it's almost like you need the discipline or I say you, but one uh-huh. needs the discipline to like sit down. I've never done this. I, and I, I'll get to that in a second, but, yeah. but I feel like you need, one needs that discipline to be able to sit down and go, I could take two weeks after whatever the fuck I just went through, whatever significant emotional experience I just went through and I'm going to sit and I'm just going to write. And I'm off the clock, and I'm just fucking writing, capturing shit. It's not going to make any sense, but I'm capturing every snippet, every little thing, so it's there, and it's preserved, and it'll be keywords, it'll trigger me, yeah. even when I get back to this, you know? I feel like that is the best way to go through these kind of very diverse lifestyles or eclectic lifestyles where you have all this different shit, and you, and you want to keep going from pop to pop to pop, but it's like, i got to capture this, though, now, because while it's fresh, otherwise that's it, it's done. Yeah. But I've never, I've never been able to get the discipline to do it. And, I've, and I remember, like after Afghanistan, um, I took like three weeks, and I kept thinking I should be writing right now, and I didn't even know what to write because it was so, and like it didn't need to be a story. It could have been like snippets. It could have been conversations. It could have been, hey, just walk into a room. What does all this sound like? Like I wish I had me now sitting next to me then, going, okay, just do this exercise, do that exercise, yeah. capture something. Because, um, but I remember going, well, it's me. It's, it's, it's all embedded in me. And I can't separate what's worthy of being captured and what isn't. Yeah. Like, acronyms are flowing so easily, that's just how I think. So I'm not noticing that that's probably worth putting down on paper. And yeah. I don't even know how to get that on the paper because I don't have a story in mind. And I, so I don't know even know what it was. It, and, I, and I was talking about, I was like, I really need to be decompressing right now and blah, blah, blah. So right. psychologically, I just wasn't in that place. And I didn't want to be cooped up in a room. I was like, I need to be out. I mean, it was COVID was happening. So oh, yeah. Explore a lot. But I was still like, I'm back in the world. I want to just see and taste and smell and get some food in my fucking palate. You know, like I want something different. But if you can get that discipline, that's fucking magic. Yeah. I think that's such a, and especially for guys like, well, like us, I guess. Right. You know, that are turned on by so many different things and things that are outside the mainstream of writing. Right? Because now you incubate as a writer. And it's like you're it's like Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake. It's like Gabby incubated in the Mickey Mouse Club and then become an entertainer. Like so many writers yeah. incubated in that womb and that cocoon of the entertainment world. And you don't get that diversity that we have. They, they like, yeah. hey, the 
wanderlust and the, the good venture, the life and death stakes and all that shit, which will make your writing fucking epic. Mm -hmm. But you gotta capture it. Otherwise, it's like, oh, fuck. God damn, I, I'm hinting at it, but I'm chasing that. That's how I feel yeah. anyway. I'm not, there's no question in that. I'm just like, that's, that's how that's, this is hitting me, though, everything you're saying. Well, it makes me think, I'll say I wrestle with that a lot. Like, okay, should I write it down immediately after it just happened? Yeah. Or yeah. should I let it gestate? There's, you know, yeah, I'm going to the actor studio drama school program and they're very much about, you know, there's like sort of that Strasbourg thing of seven years yes. as an actor. Right. Yes. And we think about how that might translate to writing. Like what if it's more about the feeling or the emotion? Um, I think stories, I think stories need to marinate because you won't. Yeah. Yet. I feel like dialogue or snippets of dialogue. Those pieces ground it, that, yeah. That deteriorates quickly. Yeah. Because you'll move on and it'll start getting dated. That, I, I'm, I'm talking on my ass here, but yeah. just off the top of my head, that's what I think. Yeah. I think it's a story takes some time to, to germinate, but but those, man, that fucking kinetic, like, oh shit, I'm still hearing them in my head. It's like, that's the shit that's perishable. Yeah. I, tr I try to figure, yeah, I'm always going to be trying to figure out which of that, like, I got to see, like, a, uh, I got to go to an event today where I saw, like, Bradley Cooper and Ellen Burstyn have like a conversation and it's like, should I be writing all this down? Like, or can I just be in the moment and absorb yes. this? Yes. They dropped some bombs of like, actually I, the friend next to me started writing down, you know, really? things. Oh, well. They were just so genuine, like art, artistic advice, not just actor, director, whatever it is. And maybe I'm hoping that later tonight, you know, my brain will process that as I sleep and, you know, later, Maybe it's not the words, but it's like the, the the inclinations. But definitely, like, so right, you sit down to write a military play, whatever story. Maybe not the military, but something years later. Are you inventing some of the slant? You know, I'm, maybe I'm second guessing myself. I think I've done that. Where I'm like, wait, did I come up with this? We don't say that. Do we say that? <laughs> yeah, you start to worry about the authenticity, but definitely, yeah. There's like pieces, touchstones that you want to take with you, and you're afraid you might lose them. Do but you then. Um, I'm not, I'm not exactly like a sit in the bar and like write my friend's dialogue, but I've definitely like always taking notes, always taking ideas down. But I do, I actually, I think I avoid trying to take snippets of speech. Um, there are times where if I do remember it later, I might write it down. Like just, I, um, uh, my girlfriend's from Argentina and you know, English is a second language. She like creates such unique sentences that are so beautiful and like prosaic, like yeah. that she doesn't even, she's just putting together the words that make sense to her. And she'll ask me like, is that appropriate? Is that how you say that? I go, no, but like better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She used to say cool. that could be, no, that may be instead of could be or something. Yeah. No, that, that could be, could be instead of maybe. And then I started thinking about like just etymology and like where does maybe come from? Is it a combination of the word may and be that may be that could be could be? I don't. There's just like so many like ways that she uses language that I try. Yeah, it helps me get out of my own like American yeah. slang or whatever and think about language in a different way. But then yeah, I don't think I should be sitting around trying to invent new sentences. Right, right, but yeah. Well, it's also like the poetry and the, the, of the syncopation mm -hmm. of speech, right? Yeah. I think that when you, when you talk about like, well, especially military stuff or any kind of multi-character 
similar experience, you know, is said. Right. It's like there's a poetry, there's a rhythm, there's a, and that's, I think, what's so hard to capture. Like, if the ear deteriorates a little on that, it's yeah. like, oh, fuck, you know, wait. Oh, yeah, there's, you know, it's just the yeah. sing-songiness of it. Also, all those stutterings and interruptions oh, and uhs yeah. and ums. And you think about, like, I had a professor who, you know, did sort of the, uh, David Mamet kind of exercise where I think we, we did do something like that. You know, we interviewed someone, recorded it, transcribed it into dialogue just to see like how conversations go. It was funny for me. Like she, she said, ask uh, your roommate, whoever their most embarrassing moment. And I asked my roommate and I go, what's the most embarrassing moment in your life? And he just sits there. I mean, and awing cause he can't, he's like, I don't know. I don't get embarrassed. And then that just created this whole thing of like me, like asking him more questions. Like, what do you mean? You, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I thought he could just like throw out an answer and my class was just fascinated by I asked a person to engage with this idea and he's his brain just wandered um and then like that exercise for me was more valuable like maybe investigative documentary style plays versus just like writing down writing down all his ums and ahs you know right 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 yeah no absolutely absolutely how many pieces are you working on right now I'm I'm in my most prolific era right now, like somehow, which I am enjoying. Also, I like that about the process. Like I can't complain that I'm just writing so much, but I'm doing like last edits on this full length that we're putting on in March. And then my thesis just got kind of greenlit for next year. So now we're going to... Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a Hemingway adaption. Um, and I'm just so excited about that. Like, it's hard to not be like, oh, I'm going to jump from this current thing to that thing. And then um, I'm working on, like, sort of an absurdism play that, like, the first half of it has been, how, like, I was able to get into the William Inge Festival by submitting, like, a, a I guess, it's sort of a stage reading part of their festival because I submitted a piece of that. And I'm just so, like, pumped on that. Like, it feels like that's got something. And then um, I'm writing short plays in classes, 10-minute plays. And then I know there's at least... Oh, yeah. And then I have a first draft of a a full length I wrote last winter that I'm finally revisiting. And we're doing sort of a revision process. So, like, this last semester, for instance, every two days I was on something different. I was writing the play that we're rehearsing now. And the next two days was an adaption. The next two days, um, the way we're doing the thesis kind of thing... We do it sort of the actor studio style of like the playwright director's unit that they're known for, where you kind of do this sort of collaborative environment. You got the director and specific actors that you're improving, you're bringing in scenes, you're you're getting to like workshop in the moment. So like it's luckily for me like that's a different process than like the play that I'm putting on now, where I just kind of wrote it in a dark room. So walk through that. What does that look like? So the playwright comes in with just a concept essentially. For the sake of, like, the beginning of the playwright director's unit that we did, um, you know, sort of a prompt was given of, like, let's write uh, progressive plays. And, you know, we, we did exercises to say, like, what do we care about right now? What does that mean, progressive plays? Uh, or just active, like, uh, you know, something you care about, right? Like, uh, okay. you know, the environment, politics, race, okay. whichever, okay. whichever you want to, like, affect an audience. Okay. And so we're like, okay, cool. Um, I got like, I got my director assigned to me, 
and then we kind of picked actors out of we have like the way they run it is like a repertory there's like a handful of directors a handful of writers and a whole load of actors and it was cool because pretty much all the actors got to be in a piece and then so we got our first rehearsal whatever it was we got in the room with the actors and we sat around a table and we said what's important to you and I got to ask like each actor like specific questions like what's like grinding your gears what's on your mind and some of these actors you know they don't write and I, I'm always pushing actors to write like they never written a play and they're like you know what I want to see a story like this or you know that's what happens in the military a lot right like someone comes up to you and says you should write a movie or a play about this but you know got the actors we're sitting around so a big topic that came up to us for all of us that we could be get, sort of get behind was like the idea of labels in society you know whether it's like professor or you know gender or even the name that's given to us at birth or the family name those are labels that we carry you know all those things and so we kind of built from the ground up i put them through improvs uh luckily the new school is very like experimental or postmodern. so like i was able to throw a lot of like kind of devised theater stuff at them even though that's not really my cup of tea per se like I put them through a scenario where what if you were immigrating to the U.S. through Ellis Island and then when they were midway through the scene, um, I had them stop and I had them swap roles. And that kind of took them by surprise. But then now all of a sudden the power dynamics are shifted. Just very simple things like I'm not the first to do that. And But those are cool things that I learned from my undergrad that, you know, the actor studios um, does a lot of improv and stuff, but we're not necessarily devising theater all the time. They have a course for it, which is excellent. But, you know, it's more leaning into classics or realism and all these great, great parts of theater that I like as well. And um, so I, you know, I got through, we put them through, you know, for three different rehearsals, like different improvs. And then I took away like the essence of that. And I went and I, I went wild and wrote like 30 pages over the course of a week and brought it in and they really clung to it. And I kind of shaped each character around them. I made a point not to just like steal what they did in the improv or like take lines from them, but definitely there were points or inspirations in these improvs of how they act. And yeah, I mean, these three characters were essentially written for them and I sort of wrote this absurdist piece that way. And the director was helping shape that as well through like physicality, mm. through just me and the director having conversations. He's the same director that's directing the play I have in March. So we already have this relationship where we can really talk to each other, talk about what's not working with the scenes. And so that process to me is new, you know, as opposed to the typical playwright at a desk, you yeah, know. And, so, but yeah, I would take a lot of notes. I'd go home, I'd digest it, you know, like let it ruminate. And then, yeah, I actually ended up writing like three different plays just out of those first conversations around the table and sort of picking the one that just felt like when they read it out loud the next week or two um, rung true. And everybody felt like, I think the actors really felt a part of the process. They were thrilled and in a way that felt collaborative, but it wasn't, um, it was still like me kind of having to drive the story or the concepts. Um, and then navigating how they like wrestle with their character and hopefully shaping it around their experience. What is your battle rhythm for writing? Do you write every day? Do you have to write every day? For that fall, just constantly churning, which I loved. And, you know, during my travels, I was writing every other day, like 
kind of because I had to, because I, you know, I had this production coming up and it almost felt in not great to be traveling when you have like all that, all this stuff. But somehow I, I felt like I did my part and like I didn't sacrifice the right. I mean, the writing was done. I guess it was mostly producer stuff, but edits, rewrites, things like that. And here we are in rehearsal and I'm still, I'm going to make some minor tweaks and we're just going to, you know, I'm not going to be that guy that just like changes the script on them the last day. I've set these standards. We're doing a reading on Sunday and I told them after we do this reading, same with the, the group that you saw, Daisy Theatricals, we're going to do like a little table read. And then, you know, I'm going to do one more swipe and then let it firm up. So like right now I'm writing, but I guess, yeah, when I'm traveling, not as much. When I'm uh, wildfire fighting, I get so much reading done. I'd say reading mostly because it's hard. Like your yeah. my brain just hurts, yeah. and like I just don't want to be on my phone. You know, when we're driving to a fire, or away from a fire, three two days of travel on the road, and um, I would get some writing done. I've written whole plays on on like fires that are being rained on, but they're not dying. The fire's still there. Like we just we're waiting for the rain to stop so we can assess it. You're writing. Yeah. On your phone? Uh, on my phone and notebooks. I, I will carry notebooks out in the field. Um, when it's, or like for instance, we will be at camp. We're all at camp. There's muddy roads everywhere, and we're just kind of hunkering down under tarps and, you know, playing cards and all these things when, when it's like we can't be actively engaging the fire. So in downtimes, usually traveling though, when we're on the road, going hotel to hotel, like getting to the fire. Are the plays about fire when you're writing them like because mm. you're so immersed in that world is i would think that's disorienting and even dangerous to suddenly go all right now here they are at an italian cafe and the guy comes yeah i would just think that'd be like cognitive dissonance to be doing that while you're under a tarp like you're not like it's tough to feel that and see it and hear it yeah is that what you're writing there's a different stuff or is it on topic is it on the fires because you're like oh yeah i'm here and this will be a good time to finish this. I sometimes it's in the camp, right? Like I, I remember we were in a fire in Canada and I was, I saw like a, a newspaper. We went to like a gas station. I got a newspaper and it had a short story in the front. And I said, Oh, I could do like, I didn't like the story at all. Like I was like, ah, this is rough to read. And I, you know, my whole unit or my group of guys read it and they're like, Sylvie, you should write one and submit it to them. And then I did like, I, I was actively engaging the fire. I'd get to camp at night and I would just on my phone, I typed a short story and then I sent it and I got it published in like that local paper. And that was like, yeah, it was about firefighting. It was just, we'll call it marketing, you know, like, Hey, I'm a firefighter. Here's my story. Like I totally, you know, squeeze that lemon. But, um, otherwise, no, I like the escapism of writing you know, sometimes I get back and I just pass out, you know, it's not going to happen. Sometimes, yeah, really a lot of it is the three days, two days, traveling two and two to three away where we're kind of like in limbo, you know, yeah. we're trying to get home so we can clean our gear so we can get those 48 hours of R&R and then right back at it again. And I know there's some people I talk to where it's like, yeah, they can't, you know, even if they have a simple job where they don't have to interact with anything, they have time to write or read. They just can't switch gears. And I think I trained myself, particularly in the military, um, to be waiting and training and like writing my notebook while the other guys are just shooting the shit. Um, obviously within reason of like, don't look like you're not engaged or, you know, those things like at least it was better than being on your phone, you know, like when it came to being around the unit or something. Yeah. 
So I don't know. I, I trained when I was taking those classes. I'm in Korea. Sure. Uh, we're doing, I'm sitting by, by, uh, in a Humvee under an M2 in a turret. And I'm like kind of quietly trying to type while we're doing like these huge peninsula wide exercises. And, you know, people are trying to sneak a wink if they can, you know, I'm like in there, like it's raining and I've got like a, you know, all that stuff. And I, I just, yeah, I got used to that. Like I almost, and I'm writing, um, criticism of a painting, uh, for an online class for art class or yeah, I I was in Missouri, you know, before that, that was the school that I went to for a little bit and I had to do a Missouri constitution course. So I'm like scrolling through the constitution, trying to write an essay for that. So I think I've trained that muscle and I do question it too. When people are like, wait, you can, you could be near a fire or whatever. Like, I don't know, you spend 14 to 21 days on it. I'm definitely, I'm either actively engaged in the fire or we're doing nothing. So. Yeah. I mean, I can see like stuff you don't, I don't want to say don't care about, but stuff that's like, you know, academic, if you're doing like academic, I can definitely see that Mm -hmm. stuff though, where you got to like, you know, deeply invest the creative process, and it plays, especially when you got to act them out a little. Yeah. Oh wait, okay, it's this, and then like I'd be like, wait, what? I can't, I can't get in that headspace now. But that's crazy. Yeah, I wrote a screwball comedy my last season. <laughs> we were on standby. They call it a uh, staging. They were staging us in a city in Arizona. And we go to the park every day and people would do, be doing pull-ups, push-ups, yeah. you know, like we're on standby. We're not in our area. Like, you know, if we had a place like a, a firehouse would be in that house, you know, right. that was our, <laughs> we'd go to a park and we just have to be ready to respond to, you know, there's lightning storms coming through. Right. We're going to do initial attack. So sometimes you get that. Sometimes you go out there for 14 days to like Phoenix or yeah. close enough and 14 days and nothing. Sometimes it's that. I forget about that, but that rarely happens because usually we're just going to the biggest fire. And I remember during that one, I wrote completely absurd screwball comedy. That's actually the play that I'm revisiting right now that I'm like revising. And yeah, I mean, I guess I was in the mindset of like piling around, shooting the shit, smoking and joking. And perhaps, and yeah, I got to separate myself from the group and it's a little isolating too. You know, I had to, we'd be at a park. I'd, I'd go kind of take up a bench and I'd, you know, if somebody came over and be like, what are you doing over here? You know, like, yeah, right. cause everybody get you're bored and people right. get nosy and it's like, ah, I'm writing and you know, they might leave me alone or I'm reading, you know, I was, I'd read voraciously if I could. And then also go play cards, go shoot yeah, the right. shit <laughs> as needed. That's crazy. That's really wild that you can do that. I'm very jealous of that. I, I don't, I mean, they said, like, you've honed your muscle, but I also think, I don't know, yeah, it's great that you have a proclivity to do that, and you've developed that flexibility to do that. Um, we should probably talk about intermission, right? Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, so that came out during COVID? That, came, that was when that kind of got birthed? No, I, I avoid COVID plays. Like, I mean, okay. one of my mentors is like, for the love of God, do not write. And he, he kind of like yeah, critiqued yeah. it. It's the only play I've written that's even mentioned COVID. Okay. And I wrote that last winter. Yeah. Kind of. We were really focusing on the idea of the ticking time bomb in uh, storytelling. You know, like if there's a bomb under the table and there's a timer on it and there's a conversation happening, the stakes are increased just naturally. And I started obsessing over the idea of like 10 minute formats. And it's like, 
I had recently seen an awful, just one of those plays to make you want to be like, oh, I need it. My God, like just wasted my time. Yeah, yeah. And we sat in the most uncomfortable chairs, which respectfully, like if I had to do a play and it was an apartment, uh, yeah, yeah, like the best you could do, you get stools. That, there's a trash can over there. I'd flip it upside down. That's a chair. But my, in my buddy, I brought a, actually, I brought an Air Force friend, a canine handler. He was in town for like a, a thing. And I brought, I go, you want to go see an apartment? And I'm already thinking like, oh, he's it's cool because he's down for anything. He's a good guy. And, uh, and I know better than to bring like a, a proper military guy to like Shakespeare. So I brought him to this thing. I go, this could be cool, could not if you're down for it. And he's like, yeah, man, like he's kind of like me. He was one of my best friends in the military. Like let's experience, I'm in New York City. Yeah. So I take him to this apartment play. It's like, rough but he comes away with like wow that was cool like this is your life now you know all the, it was one of those things where you bring someone into your life yeah. and um so yeah bad play the seats and then later i went to a film and somebody like knocked over like a beer or wine and just like ruined like two rows of seating with that puddle and you know that sticky yeah. awful and i just put those ingredients together into this sort of like couple drama um, and then just COVID came up, you know, in, yeah. in those characters conversation. Yeah. Oh, I was think yeah, I was thinking a lot about how many COVID couples I saw fizzle out during this period, you know, people who kind of housed up together yeah. and how many relationships I saw suffer or, uh, I want to say in, in my case, our relationship, uh, my girlfriend, I've been with her for over four years. Mm-hmm. We like, we like bonded. You know, um, so that's how that kind of came up for that play. But yeah, I guess a little bit post COVID, however post COVID we are now, I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's it's such a it's such a fun piece. I mean, I love the concept of it, and I love the construct of it. Uh, the couple themselves, what was the inspiration for them? So you you have these COVID couples in mind, mm-hmm. right? Did you have specific people? in mind like were you how much were you hearing them and how much of it was I need the guy and the girl and I know the types that they are or how much of it was I, I remember that guy I remember the face I remember and then the rest of it falls into place I try me specifically I try not to take too much from like a specific person in life sometimes I try to picture the actor I want to play the character mm-hmm. um yeah I've just kind of made that a point for myself at a certain point when you're trying to figure out what kind of writer you are and so there definitely is like this couple that met about the same time that me and my girlfriend did, uh, October before COVID, where we just, whether unknowingly or in conversation, measured ourselves against them. We couldn't help it. And I think they egged it on. You know, they wanted to show how intimate they were in public. We're not like crazy public. Yeah. So and you could see, I mean, and this gets like into ego and stuff too. It's like you could see where they felt challenged by our love for each other. And I watched them just crash and burn in the worst way possible. And me and my girlfriend are looking at each other like, yeah, like good. Like, I mean, at a certain point, we just say, like, we cannot compare ourselves to them because they just sprinted you know, into like living together and like all these things that I think a lot of people did is coping or whatever. Don't, the fear of being alone. That's the thing with these COVID couples. They're so afraid to be alone. 
and yeah, I put that in there. I had the, I had one of the characters go, maybe I rushed into this COVID like living together because I was so afraid to be alone during such a traumatizing time. And whenever it came to me and my partner living together, I really, we really analyzed it like, you know, are we doing this because of COVID? Like, is this the time for us to live together? You know, not walking into it going, oh, this is going to be so great. Like, you know, um, and I couldn't believe how we, we came out of it stronger. And I even was so ready for just like it to go wrong. You know, what do you do if you're stuck in an apartment and you, you know, the world's like saying the streets are closed, do not go outside. Like, what if that happens? And I just thought about like hell wartime, you know, I've read, um, stories of, you know, cities being under siege and like, imagine like the, the couples that had to go through that stuff or like, I've read some crazy stories, you know, just about, you know, World War II couples being separated and, and all that stuff. Yeah. That reminds me, where do you plan on traveling in the future? Are you going to do conflict zones? <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, right. I assessed conflict journalism yeah, at some right, point right. and I determined, you know, I read, I, I just feel so awful. There's this, this, this great journalist. She was, she lost an eye to do it due to an artillery strike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's, such a prolific journalist she passed away I think you know when I was in high school and I read her biography and I realized about the end of her career is when that kind of era of journalism finished where now it's very dependent I know you can go get a great degree and go I wasn't going to go to Yale and get a writing degree in fact she had a Yale degree and couldn't get work in the 90s and um, now it looks like if you're looking into becoming like a conflict journalist, perhaps hopefully you were like a combat cameraman in the military and you can parlay into there, but you need to get your own camera. Yeah. You need to go to a conflict zone. You need to get a social media following. You need to write video interview. You need to be your own talking head. You need to be a cinematographer. You need drones. Like you're a one man band. And that's just not how I pictured, like, you know, I read uh, Evelyn Woe's book um, about journalism. And it was, it was kind of like a, a satire on journalism of like 100 years ago. It's not like that anymore. All these journalists had like assistants and they stayed in the hotel and they went to the front lines and came back. Now you got to like, yeah, you got to figure out your own visa and sneak into the Ukraine. And yeah, yeah I've got to, yeah. There's, there, there's certainly, are, there are people I know that have, that have done a lot of writing and just made it mostly their writing done the mm -hmm. it. Um, and kind of trusted your Rolling Stones or your New York Times to come and you know grab something from you yeah like, but they don't hire you right like they, they, don't, they yeah don't hire you and, but, and, but they do build up their credibility and then yes yeah. they can fall into things almost all of them I mean uh, I mean my not telling tales out of school my friend Holly McKay is you know yeah is awesome and all that. I think it helps to be a female. It helps to be somebody that I, I don't know any guys that do it. Like she had her photographer Jake Simpkins that would travel with her. Um, but I mean, she was you know obviously front and center. I'm like I don't, I don't know if you can do it as a guy. I think you're too much of a target, too threatening. Just to be male, I think it's too hard. There's certain brass tasks, brass tax aspects of that. Like I remember the the book's called In Extremis, and I'm forgetting. 
the famous journalist. But no, I, she, I know exactly who you're talking about. I can't remember. She really gets open about that. She talks about during certain conflicts being able to go in with the women uh, who are like being held hostage, getting to talk her way through a checkpoint. Um, but also, of course, the dangers, too. She's so much more of a target. And I think she had such a, a balanced way of talking about it. She'll talk about her male counterparts and her female counterparts and where there's advantages to the male counterparts and advantages to the female. And, yeah, she absolutely used those aspects and weaponized 100%. them. 100%. And, again, I think, and that's what I say. Like, I think, I think personal. I mean, this is just my take. I mean, who the fuck am I? But, I mean, from what I've seen... And I have to say there were three combat zones that I was in where I saw conflict journalists there. Mm-hmm. Did not give me a very good impression of conflict journalists. It's very clear to me what I saw. Oh, there's I mean, almost all of them. I don't know what the fuck we're talking about this. Why not? Um, almost all of them had hand, had um, not handlers. They had fixers. They were almost always right. the wrong tribe. Almost always the wrong clan. Almost always people, and they're just being fed bad guy propaganda because they they're they, and they don't know any better. In some cases, they literally have walked off the plane into the country to just infiltrate. And these were countries you cannot walk off a plane into. So in yeah. a lot of cases, they've been taken into custody. There's people that have had to do workarounds to like. There's a whole bunch of shenanigans that had to happen for them to be there. And I will say in many cases that included them sleeping with somebody of influence, um, to stay there, to be perfectly frank. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, being misused or led astray. And there's stuff, the stuff that they would get published or that I would see get published while I was in country, All right. inevitably was, um, it had to be the anti-American stuff. That's what gets, that's what gets eyeballs. There, it, it, the second you bash SOCOM, second you go after this, that, and it was always wrong. And I'm not saying it was wrong because I was just one of the part like, like, you're talking about things I was at. Yeah. And it's like, you literally, anyway, so I, I have a very dim view of a lot of that because I'm like, and they're one person, Holly I love, so let me stipulate since I mentioned mm-hmm. her name. Holly's awesome, and, and um, she's written stuff that's been controversial and all that, but she's fucking awesome, and a lot of her stuff is, been vetted and validated and checked out and, and, and passes the smell test and, and she's kind of put her money where her mouth is. There's other people that I'm thinking of though that I do not feel very charitable about who you know now are getting very swank jobs at papers because they've yeah. a resume. But it was inherently, yeah, it was like, oh, I'm gonna write from this very remote corner and tell something. Anyway, I say, yeah. I say that to say, um, it's interesting, and I, if you get into conflict journalism in any way, shape, or form, or even just conflict literature, mm-hmm. to be able to go and write from a place like that, yeah. I think it'd be wildly interesting, and I would be incredibly impressed at what access you could get as a guy, because that's the biggest thing to me. So I was like, I mean, there was one girl who was, um, yeah, she ended up dating this British guy who had like, gone rogue, I mean, not actively rogue, mm. not AWOL, but he was just... He had a military background, all that. And he could drive. He would drive with an AK and a Jeep all over the country. Yeah. And so she'd be there because she was his girlfriend. So she had access. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, no. I mean, what guy is... He's not going to invite a guy to come along with him and go, yeah, 
come with me all over the place and I got this arms deal I'm gonna do and I'm maybe this drug dealer over here or whatever you like you know I, I that's he wasn't that kind of guy it's like oh yeah. you need that trusted person you know they need that remote romantic connection to make that work or at least the guise of it or the potential of it or something I sound like I'm saying every conflict journalist has to be you know whore themselves out that's not what I'm saying <laughs> but I do think like in that that was one example of where I was like that's a female that's going to get access that no guy is going to get access to. And I do think, it was the, I think it was Joan Didion. I think I've talked about this with Hopkins. Okay. But like Joan Didion yeah. said, like that was her whole secret, right? Is that she was so unprepossessing that everybody would want to show off in front of her. Everybody would want to open up. Everyone would want to explain why they did what they did. And she would just come in and it was just so, you felt so comfortable because you, you could dominate her. Yeah. And that's why you would open up. Yeah. That's, right? I think that's what maybe bothers me a little bit when you find out how journalism really works. Not just that, but like the amount of acting or performing you have to do. Yeah. Like what's kind of cool is like, you know, there, so the freelance aspect of journalism is, you know, you, you don't really have to write to the beat of the drum of a certain paper, which is cool or right. outlet. There's a, you know, there's a, um, I'll mention the, you know, kind of popular YouTube journalist uh, Andrew Callahan who he said in interviews he goes uh, he looks a lot very young long hair he wears an oversized suit or he did initially he's probably changed his methods now and he said you know he's showed up to like Sturgis and he just looks like a college kid with a microphone and he said people would just open up to me you know like he, he just looks aloof and his hair is shaggy and he's got this Walmart suit uh, which I think he auctioned off for a lot of money for a charity or something. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. And same with, like, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, sure. He would talk about when he would do sort of political stuff, he would dress up whatever character, and he goes to the door. And as soon as he answers the door, he's like, can I take a shit? And it immediately disarms people. So, like, there's a performativity that certain journalists get, or they just they know what kind of person they're dealing with, yeah. you know, that – and perhaps – I just, I'm just so obsessed. Like, if I really could, I would be like this sort of J.D. Salinger writer in the dark, just like observing and writing. I don't like the big part of the new journalism, right? Is um, you gotta film your own stuff. You gotta do those interviews. Um, that an extremist, that journalist talked about how she adapted to having to be a talking head, even though yeah, she wanted to write that that big piece that like changed. Yeah the world yeah. and she also talks brass tacks about yeah like how do you be um neutral in, in a conflict and recognizing that she had power you know there's a i just can't bring up any specifics because i'll just embarrass myself with my history but you know she's at a conflict and she knew that her story had gotten worldwide attention it had changed the the playing field it got enough attention that the un stepped in or whatever yeah. it was and i think that's fascinating and cool but it's like yeah where's the line i mean with a writer i'm a, I'm a writer i'm allowed to insert myself as an adventure yes. writer yeah. into the thing you know have you heard of that story of hemingway and gellhorn at d-day no uh gellhorn uh arrived on the beaches mm -hmm. the only woman to be on the beaches at d-day so claimed mm -hmm. she got to like get up front, write about everything. Hemingway brooded from a different boat. And when he found out that she got to be like on the beaches, like writing, like actively taking pictures, all these things, he decided he had to one up her. This is, you know, more hearsay than fact, but he, as soon as he got a chance, he joined, he left his unit that he was writing for 
got tied in uh, with a French resistance, got himself a bandolier grenades and, you know, a rifle and charged Paris. And, you know, like Hemingway was a very complicated man's man. So it's like you almost get it like where he like he had to one up his wife. And of course, I, that marriage didn't work out, uh, I think. So I'll, I'll try not to pop more of what might be fact or not about Hemingway. But like but that, that concept. That yeah. Idea, I mean, yeah. No, I was, and that totally checks out. Not, I guess, somewhat for Hemingway, assuming that actually happened. But. Just for your great writers anyway, right? Mm -hmm. There's a healthy ego. And for the adventure writer, there is something about you want to be the one. You have to be the one. If everybody is in fucking South Sudan, then it's not really that special. Thing to do South <laughs> yeah. Sudan, right? And there yeah. is something about like, wait, shit, you're raining on my I came all the fucking way over here and you're going to be fucking be here too. Like that, I, I get it. Like there's humor yeah. involved, right? That's a, such an interesting fucking dynamic. I met a kid at the new school. He, uh, he told me to buy, he was a freshman, so young. I'm 23 on the military. I meet this 19 year old, whatever. Uh, he goes, you ever heard of gonzo journalism? And I was like, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, um, Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson, like with the hell's angels, all that stuff. And he's like, I'm going to be like that. And I'm like, okay. I mean, you're going to like, like that kind of journalism. Like, I don't think that's what I want to be like, right. You uh, you navigate the line between journalism and and getting involved and yeah once again like as a writer I'm not a journalist so like there's no like code of ethics right, right. I I have my own code my own morals um, I wish I I think you know the, that book by Elvin Woe I can't remember the name of it Scoop Scoop by Evelyn Woe which I read that because I love Catch Twenty Two so much they have so much in common like style wise like the absurdity of war and like yeah. all these things. Um, it analyzes like the satire of all these journalists who some of them are creating stories because they need to get a headline. They're like literally inventing stories. And back then, a hundred years ago, it's like, that's how you got the news. It was these people who went there and they're writing for specific papers and there's definitely a bend, you know, it's like, what's going to get the read and all these assistants and, and the way they fought each other for the stories, the scoop. You know, it's so different from now. And it's like, either way, 100 years ago, I don't want that. I don't want, like, this fighting for the scoop, inventing, making things sound embellished. Right. Um, but then again, those headlines were more like, this conflict happened. Like, right. there was a battle, rebels and so-and-so. Um, and now nobody's going to click that. We're all getting fed, you know, um, headlines through algorithms anyways. All the people in my school, all the people in my age group, they're not reading any news. They, they get it through Twitter or Instagram, just as bad as you think, where it's like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about things that are relevant to our city, and my friends are like, what? Like, you know, I'm like, oh, do you know that, like, this bike shop just blew up, you know, the battery, you know, the this lithium battery's blowing up everywhere, you know? <laughs> and uh, no one knows, like, you know, like, they're plugging in their battery and they don't know, you know? So, I think we've talked about this offline in the past, but I think it's worth mm -hmm. diving into a little here, because, um, and I can dime myself out so you don't have to if need be. But especially when you're pivoting from wildland firefighting to the theater world, mm -hmm. I'll project, I'll project my own experiences, and you can tell yeah. me how much or how little this applies to you. For me, um, so like, 
I was doing army stuff and then I'd be back in the city and I always have to do improv. I don't anymore because I'm still yeah. fucking far away. But I generally, especially when I lived in LA or New York, I'd always be doing improv. And I remember um, going into Safari, which is the Special Forces Readiness Evaluation for 19th Group in LA. And like the night before I had an improv show. And then like the, the week after I'm like, you know, back in, in still in the same classroom with my same group or whatever. And just the cognitive dissonance of shifting between those two worlds. And, you know, it, it's, not, it's, it's not always, as, it can be this, but it's not always as trite as, boy, I really had a tough week. Yeah, you know, I, you know, went on like three auditions and none of them went that well or something yeah. like that. And you're like, yeah, you know, my feet are fucking, I have no skin on the bottom. Yeah. Or something. Um, it, it wasn't always, and that's obviously kind of a very straightforward, obvious one, but it's even, it was even more subtle. It was even just the, um, the distance I felt from the civilian population. Well, that had to influence your improv, right? Like, oh, it totally did. It totally were, were you totally less did. funny? Or, you know, I mean, like, I was, was it? Was okay. And, and the reason was is because every nothing was caricature. Mm-hmm. Everything, like, I remember I'd do, like, like one scene or something was, was about, um, I don't know, some, somebody giving up about press, doing a press conference about some tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and it just it felt very, I was like, it was just very grounded. I was like, there's, I'm not playing up anything. Yeah. But I'll say things, and, you know, I'm talking about, and that's why, you know, we're just making sure the public knows if you're you know, going to blow up your helium balloons, make sure you don't inhale because the change in your voice of a couple octaves yeah. is probably too tragically funny. And that's going to, and it's like, wait, what? Huh? Not, yeah. but, but you're selling it, right? You're selling it. What about gallows humor? Um, what do you ever? I feel like I have to pull back a little bit on gallows humor, otherwise you. Sc- <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess that yes. For me, it's not gallows humor. It's um, it's the cousin of that. It's um, that sense when you're with when you're with people that there's such an implicit trust. Mm-hmm. You could say you realize, of course, that you're an abortion of a human being. Like, yeah. Because there's a trust. Like, you know we love each other, so I don't have to fucking say I can be a fucking, I can say yeah. awful things to you, right? Yeah, like family. That's like like I, something you'd say to your brother or your sister. Brother. Yeah. Like, I always go there. And I also love Mammoth. So anytime I can call somebody a cunt or, you know, yeah. really just harsh them out with some sort of, like, phrase, and you marry that with, like, the brotherly banter of the military or something. Yeah. And it's, and people are just looking at you like, what sort of... You do that to a fellow actor and they're like, wait, what? What, <laughs> what did you just say? You know, it's just yeah. So that, to me, I'm thinking like when you talked about flying in mm-hmm. the mountains and then sitting there, I know exactly that feeling. I, I can totally relate to that. And to me, you took it in such a positive way. To me, it chafed me. Like, I'd sit mm. there and I'd go, and this is me, like Ricky Gervais said, you can only say cunt if you really mean it or if you really don't. <laughs> and I think, uh, and I, I would sit there and go, you cunt, you're fucking, you're, you're taking yourself so fucking seriously, and, you, and there's so much fun to be had, and the artifice of you taking yourself seriously is inhibiting your art, and you don't even see it. And yeah. I felt like I had a really clear lens, because 
I was coming into it all full of fresh air and vim and vigor and all that. And I was like, God, just fucking be. Just fucking. Do you know how to actually be with a person? Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so to me, it was. It, it felt restrictive. I felt like, and I became, and I realized over time, like I thought about, hey, I should come to the city and do more improv or go back to acting class just to be in the community and because it's fun and all that. But I'm like, I don't want to. It's too fucking limiting. Yeah. In that world, and suddenly those become your walls, and I want the real world to be my walls, so that my art is free to roam where the fuck it goes. Does any of that make sense? Does any of that, like, what tracks and what doesn't? What's different in your experience? That might be why I need to travel. Like, uh, when you get out of this, like, you go to other countries, and what they find funny is like offensive here, uh, and it's like. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much humor in other communities that like we've banned here that it's like so like self-aware in whatever culture. I'm not even gonna like be specific. It's like just so self-aware. And it's like, yeah, laugh at this, like, you know, and I would tell them, like, oh, in the US, this, this, and that. And they go, Why? Like, we think that's funny. Why don't you think that's funny? And it's like, I, we've decided for you. Uh, you know, like even wildland firefighting, like I work with people from different walks of life that, you know, they're, they're like, what's going on in New York? Why did you, what's with the New Yorkers over there? Like my mentor, like, you know, he's like from a very specific walk of life where he's like, who the fuck do you New Yorkers think you are? Like deciding what for me is wrong, you know, or like even somebody who looks like me living in New York city decided that, you know, like this is taboo or whatever it is. And I just, I just absorb and wrestle that because I really don't play in either field. I like, I'm really just trying to experience. I'm in no way edgy, but I do. I listen to a lot of comedy. I, yeah. I, tr I go to comedy clubs all the time. Yeah. Uh, I try to pick up sometimes they fuck up like just stupid stuff. But then, yeah, like there's an aspect of, when I travel, I can just like relax, you know, like in that way. Yeah. Like, um, once again, I'm just real. I'm really not that cool. I'm not that edgy, but I go somewhere else. And I go, wow, that's like, uh, yeah, you can't see that where I'm from, you know, or whatever. Um, that pisses me off. Yeah. That pisses me off because I mean, what, the, what else are we? Yeah, I, I went to a comedy show recently. They had too many lights on, and the people are like, "Ah, we get it. Like, the, we're in a deli, and they're like, we, the lights are on. You guys feel like you can't laugh, and it's like we're literally making fun of ourselves here. Like, you can laugh, and we kind of laughed at that. And I was like, that's true. Like, this room is too. Like, <laughs> you need like, like one. Yeah, one comedian's like, you turn the lights down. Everybody feels like they can be themselves, and the lights are up. You're worried who's looking at you. And so I, I know comedians are wrestling with this act. I was in, I was at a, the comedy cellar and this comedian came in. I don't know if this is true. He's a great comedian. Uh, and he's like, I showed up because I got texts from the comedians on tonight's lineup saying this audience sucks. He comes in, he roasts us, he kills and like walks out and he's like, I don't know what they said. You guys are fine. But like the way he was like, yeah, I was alerted that you're in one, one comedian said we were the worst in a month. And by we, I mean everyone but me, obviously. Uh, like, I thought, I've seen some of these comedians kill before. Right. I find that so interesting, you know, engaging with, like, live feedback from audience. That tells you everything right there. Yeah. Um, there's that's, a, that's yeah. Hmm? When you feel like you can't fucking laugh at what is naturally making you laugh, 
I mean, as artists, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. That authenticity you talk about, I, I want it. And yeah. yeah, there are people here that are holding themselves back. Um, I guess I'm just waiting for like the ebb and flow of culture to bring us to, you know, I'm hoping. And that I, I feel that anger so much too all the time. And I just try to like maybe put in my writing. Once again, not yeah. specifically. I will say, yeah, it does feel like I'm trying to take notice of if my characters are a little angrier. You know, like if I keep, I, sometimes I feel like maybe I write too many curmudgeons you know, um, so I, I try to take note of that and like, fine, if that's my thing, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to absorb as an artist and it frustrates me when other people censor like that. Like I, I know there are like boundaries, but like, we are so tight. We are so tight. Um, and I go talk to actors or writers in India or Vietnam and they're like free, you know, they're unhinged, you know, like, and that doesn't mean they're doing like just crazy off the wall stuff. It, it, like, um, you can't live in a, you get a world where there's self censorship or active social censorship mm-hmm. of what you're trying to do. Yeah. That, that's not, and or, you're going to create, it's going to be, it's going to provoke more outrageous stuff just for people to push back if you're artistically inclined. Yeah. That it's, mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. That is something that I, I mean, I'm with you. I hope that does start to flow away because that is not sustainable. That that's um, certainly not artistically. That's why, like you know, comedy seller, put your phone in a bag. Like people who are there. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, they put your phone in a bag. Wow. The comedians try out. St- they they're allowed to fail. You feel like in that environment, people are there because they want to see comedy and like totally. that's fucking great good for them yeah it's um Did you ever go to the comic strip on the upper east side have you ever been up there no i haven't i i went to a deli show on the upper east side but i haven't been to the comic strip but yeah it always feels i live in the east village so it's like yeah. it seems like i can just trot over yeah. but going up there i know they, they do some that's like one of the the clubs yeah, the good right, ones yeah right yeah that was my old stand-up days so i just i was wondering if they did that as well how, how widespread is it for I think you have to have a place that has like celebrities coming all the time. I think the comic strip does, you know, like I'm sure, um, there's a few places around town, but I feel like it's the comedy store and the comedy seller. I'll bet I haven't been to the comedy store in LA, but oh. I bet, I bet you put your phone in a bag in that one because, uh, yeah, like literally Dave Chappelle is going to come on and try some stuff and he doesn't yeah, want you to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I guess you always wonder if people are coming in with polished stuff and they're like, okay, I'm getting my letterman ready. I don't really care, like filming or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's, a, boy, it's such a fucking weird time for that. That's really bizarre. Why didn't you go into stand-up? Have you ever thought about it? Um, I, I'm leading more into it now. You know, I started taking like UCB sketch classes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm leaning more into the, the, like, yeah, humor in my plays more so like um and and yeah once again the performance aspect of like acting or all that stuff I I think I'm fine with it like I always say to people like you know they assume you must be an actor first if you're a playwright like that happens a lot or a director and it's like no actually I'm I'm a writer I come from maybe more literary and and they say, well, do you act? I go, yeah, but I consider it like, you know, the method slash the actor studio always says like the instrument, you know, the body's the instrument. I like to pick up the guitar and like strum it 
you know. Right. Uh, I don't want to sit and pluck chords all day. I'm in all these acting classes where you're closing your eyes and you're like envisioning your goals and people are screaming and crying. And I, that just doesn't get me there. Like, you know, I, I, I write out that artistic element for me. Um, I love making people laugh. I, I do well in social situations, telling jokes. And that's always a slippery slope to, yeah, let me try an open mic night and get crickets. So one day I'll probably try the crickets out, but... Um, I'm, I'm terrified of that. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Um, all right. We need to, we need to give you a proper shout out. Tell everybody where they need to follow you, how they need to follow you, how they need to stay on top of everything you have going on. Sure. Um, yeah. At, at Dakota Sylvie and we, well, we have a show going up at the Gene Frankel, uh, in Manhattan. It's on 24 Bond street. And yeah, if, if you go to like dakotasylvie.com or my Instagram, you'll find a link to that. And it's March 6th to the 10th. And um, we're releasing tickets on February 5th. So we're really excited. It's, it's you know, an intimate venue. Uh, I'm not, I'm trying not to boast when I say I think we will sell out. So it's like get tickets cool. early. This is um, just because of the, the efforts of my collaborators and the fact that it's an intimate space. And it's a one-week showcase. Uh, I'm so excited for it. And I, what's it called? It's called Flight Risk. I should say that, huh? Yeah, the, yeah. the name of the play. Yeah, the Instagram is Flight Risk Play. You know, uh, at Flight Risk Play. And yeah, I won't sit and boast why, but like, I think I think it's going to be an amazing show. And we're kind of trying to snowball and spiral this into something bigger. And I just have such a good feeling with my collaborators. Like this, this is the, this is because we want to, we want a festival in the summer at the Gene Frankel. And we were invited to have like a week at the space. And that's kind of like the reward for that. And we just felt like all the audience, they sold out that every night and the audiences voted for ours and um, really loved it and wanted to see like a full length piece, which is funny because I didn't. I wrote it to be a 10 minute play, you know, like intermission play. It's like somebody told me now make a full length out of that. I'd be like, I don't know. Sometimes I think the format of a story, the medium of a story, it needs to stay that way. Like I said, with picture of a Dorian Gray. Um, so this one though, I, I was like, all right, I sat down to write it. Cause I tried to pitch. Can I do a different play? And the artistic director was like, no, that's the game. You got to extend that play. And I did. And it like, I'm, it worked like, I didn't feel like I hit some kind of brick wall of like me forcing this story. Like these characters that we, that the actors and the director and we all work together on just kind of grew. And now we're in the midst of rehearsals and we added another performer. Um, and it's all just like growing a lot bigger than it would, than it was initially. Fucking wild, man. So I'm very excited for that. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love for you to come see it. Um, dude, it's been a blast, man. Long time coming. Thanks so much. It's, yeah. Well, yeah. to be continued, we got a lot more to talk about, I'm sure, down the road. Absolutely. I'm glad we could do this, man. That was the savage wonder of Dakota Sylvie. My thanks to Dakota for sitting down and being so generous with his time. That was a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. And I have to thank the players for always being so gracious and letting us record these episodes, or the ones we do in person anyway, there. Uh, it really couldn't be a better setting, especially when you have a playwright uh, like Dakota. 
Um, you know, it was great to see him taking in the three stories of his of theatrical history at the players. Uh, just couldn't have been a better setting for this podcast. Okay. Um, as I've been saying for months, really, there's a bunch of stuff I want to tell you all about, about what's going on at Vet Rep. And I can't. <laughs> and I can't tell you about it now for very different reasons than why I couldn't tell you about it, I don't know, two months ago. Um, things have been rapidly evolving, metastasizing, changing over the last couple months in very cool, exciting ways. I'm not going to lie. I and probably everyone else at Fairrep is going to be very happy when we stop metastasizing and when things lock in and firm up and we can actually talk about some of this stuff. But I'm glad I didn't talk about it earlier because if I had, you'd get whiplash from how many changes have had to happen for some reasons in our control and some that aren't, but all of which are good developments and positive developments. And in the dangerously near future, we should have some updates of some sort for you. So I will. T- I can tell you that we are planning our season, kicking off as always in April, <clears throat> and uh, all the other details outside of that I can't get into right now. But um, our season will kick off on the in the normal timeline. And I guess the best thing to do is for you to go to our website, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you're there, scroll a little bit down the homepage. You will see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. So when you sign up, you will receive in your email inbox every single day a little snippet of veteran writing, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, sometimes just a picture of veteran artwork, and then follow with a bunch of shameless plugs of all the different things we have going on. So go subscribe because um, it's a really good way to stay on top of all the stuff we have going on. And you will be the first to know all the news coming up when we have it by signing up to the literary blog. Okay. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. And I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Veterans Repertory Theater, our thanks to Dakota Sylvie, our thanks to the players. We'll see you next time as we dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. (laughs) ¶¶